Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to Africa on the Move. 
Brother Africa, thanks for having me. My name is Haiki Kamata Mishoki, coming with African Awareness. And uh, my my concern, of course, is all about institution building. And one reason why institutions are extremely important, I recently read an article. Uh, it talks about top Democrats are circulating the question of a poll showing that Alexander Ocasio-Cortez, uh, the congresswoman from New York, appeared to swing voters. And the report stated that she is seen by swing voters. Swing voters, of course, are those voters who may change their mind in terms of whether they vote Republican or Democrat. That's a definitional face of the Democratic Party. Now, what I find problematic is the, the Democratic leadership response. Um, now, one of the things, the mainstream media continues to evoke her name. In fact, Fox News mentioned her name over 3,181 times in the last six weeks. Clearly, the elite wants citizenry to equate descendant uh, Democrats with AOC, and by extension, socialism. Why is it that Democrats won't acknowledge her visibility as part of the right-wing strategy and, as such, affords the Democratic Party an opportunity to capitalize on her visibility by showing people capitalism and democracy cannot coexist? Apparently because the Democratic Party is beholden to the same corporate master as the Republican Party, the only viable strategy for Democrats is to find ways to ostracize AOC as opposed to exposing the corruption of both parties. So clearly one of the things that when we talk about the similarity between the parties, uh, one of the things I think as, as, as people you know, in this country, we have to start thinking about in terms of our, our longevity in the society. Clearly, the Democrat and the Republican Party have the interests of people at heart. The interests lie squarely with corporate America. And as such, corporate America interests purely uh, economics. So if, if, in fact, it's all about e- economics, then what does that mean in terms of the livelihood of people who reside in this, in this country? It means that their, their lives are superfluous. They're not important. Because to the extent that they can they contribute to the bottom line of corporate America, they're fine. But if they can't contribute to the bottom line of corporate America, the question is, for corporate America, is how do we get rid of these people? And by using their minions, in this case, the political class in terms of carrying out their policy, it's not in the interest of African people or people generally in terms of embracing either Democrat or Republican. So you have to have institutions to firmly deal with this reality and to strategize ways in terms of, you know, for, you know getting around this insanity, because to the extent that people actually survive in society is going to determine how organized folks are in society and how well they understand what the issues are. So institutions are extremely important in terms of you know, um, formatting thought, getting people to understand the, the necessity in terms of why they have to understand what's going on, and being able to actually work together to bring about positive results you know, for humanity. So institutions are extremely important. Having said that, Brother Africa, thanks again for having me. Thank you, Brother Haki. We next will go to Brother Anthony. Brother Anthony, welcome to Africa on the Move. Uh, thanks for having me. Uh, revolutionary greetings to you, uh, the fellow panelists and the listening audience. My name is Anthony Williams. I'm an organizer for the All African People's Revolutionary Party, GC. Objective is Pan-Africanism the total liberation and unification of Africa under scientific socialism. Okay, Father Brother Anthony, we now will bring in our Brother Moses. Brother Moses, welcome to Africa on the Move. Thank you, thank you, and greetings to everyone within the sound of my voice. My name is Robert Andrew Moses, and I've been in the struggle for scientific socialism from the moment I was introduced to Marxism during a government class back in my high school years, 1968. I call Marxism the race to cure racism. 
I bear witness that there is one God, Jesus, the author and finisher of my faith, and that Mao Zedong is his messenger for government. Fathers, help your children. I beg you once again, Brother Africa, for allowing me to be on the show. Okay, what we're going to do right now, we're going to take a quick pause for the call, so when we come back, we're going to our first segment on what's going on in your world and your community. We'll be right back. This is Africa on the Moon. Brother Haki, let us know what's going on in your world and the community. 
Well, a couple of things. First, African Awareness, we're doing a solidarity tour for the people to Cuba. We'll be going to, to Havana, Cuba, and this trip will take place October 31st and November 6th. And we encourage people to give us a call for more information at area code 804-549-7492 or area code 202-714-9435 or email us at African Awareness Association, all one word, number two, at gmail.com. We encourage people to go to see Cuba for themselves firsthand as opposed to relying on, you know, propaganda uh, uh, in terms of you know, understanding, you know, precisely what's going on in Cuba. So we definitely encourage people to give us a call and to inquire about to take the trip. Uh, now, the second thing, Brother Africa, recently it was reported that in late 2017, a boat, the Sea which was captured by uh, Pia Kemp, and she's a German citizen. She observed a dinghy with about 130 to 150 African refugees of, uh, in a dinghy being battered by, sea, by the sea swell. Now, while Libya Coast Guards, the French Army ships, and Portuguese patrol aircraft observed endangered migrants, they did nothing to assist. Captain Peter Clem took action to save many of the migrants, and, and for her humanity, heroic efforts, she was charged by the Italian officials with aiding immigrants. She stands to be placed in jail for 20 years. Now, prior to this event, uh, she captained the Leventum which was credited with saving over 14,000 human beings. So the mere fact that she did that speaks volumes in terms of humanity. And what I found very, very extraordinary was the fact that the, the, the German government praised her heroic action and saying being humane is the only thing that she could have done. So I find that very, very ironic, in particularly when you look at the United States in terms of their response to all of these immigrants down at sea. There's been not a, not a word from the U.S. government in terms of this kind of a disaster. Also, uh, there's a couple of other individuals also charged with crimes in terms of assisting immigrants at sea. Um, Miguel Rodin, he's also faces probably possibly 10, 15, 10 to 15 years in prison for his role in terms of saving immigrants. And Captain Carola Racchetti, she's also a German citizen, and she's also charged with aiding uh, immigrants. And she also stands, received 20 years in prison for assisting human beings. So the mere fact that these people stand up and proclaim their humanity and actually practice that uh, is criminalized because values in terms of this move toward fascism in the world. I think one of the things we have to begin to understand when we talk about fascism, first it starts with a marginalized group. In this case, we're talking about immigrants, and they're perceived as somehow you know, their life is not important. But ultimately, that whole notion that life's not important spreads. No longer does it pertain just to immigrants, then pretty soon there's other groups in society which um, – are deemed expandable. So we got to understand this drift in turn toward fascism is worldwide, and we understand the role the U.S. intelligence, U.S. government play in terms of facilitating neo-fascism and neo-Nazism throughout the world. So we got to be very, very concerned about that. So having said that, Brother Africa, I just think that it's very, very important that we at least acknowledge those individuals out there who are doing humane work, understanding that this, this is a very protracted struggle. And the whole question around, you know, right and wrong, has to be clarified. And so for those people who are doing that, which is right, morally, politically, otherwise, we have to stand up and we have to support them. Thank you, Brother Hakeem. We now have a move to Brother Anthony. Brother Anthony, what's going on in your world and the community? Okay, a uh, couple of things. Uh, this has been a rather eventful week. Uh, this last week uh, on July 16th was... Sister Sada Shakur's birthday And uh, she says her birthday With um, 
with um, our ancestor uh, journalist, uh, Ida B. Wells. And uh, yesterday in Newark, New Jersey, there was a boat party uh, celebrating the launching of uh, Mumia Abu-Jamal and Stephen Victoria's new book, um, Murder Incorporated, book two, America's Favorite Pastime. And this is about, uh, you know, the history of development of fascism inside the U.S., uh, the CIA, and uh, the history of U.S. intervention in order to maintain its domination uh, throughout the world. Also, uh, there was uh, uh, there's a, uh, a program coming up this Saturday uh, sponsored by the, uh, the New York, New Jersey Cuba Sea Coalition commemorating uh, the 56th anniversary of the, uh, of the attack on the Moncada barracks, which launched uh, the Cuban Revolution. Oh, 66th anniversary, uh, my mistake, of the anniversary of uh, the attack on the Moncada barracks. This will take place at 133 West uh, 33rd Street in New York City near 6th and 7th Avenue, between 6th and 7th Avenues. Yeah, go ahead, Brother Moses. What's going on in your world in the community? Oh, okay. Um, this is this is this the the four Congress women uh, that Trump has been ostracized and spoke out this past week uh, in a press conference. I thought they did a good job of, of highlighting the contradictions between Trump and and democracy and uh, and uh, Freedom of speech, etc. Um, I thought that was a very good job done. Um, also, this weekend, and I, I don't have I don't have access to the computer right now. I don't have the fly in front of me, but this weekend, the the D.C. Metropolitan Committee in solidarity with the Cuban Revolution is holding a demonstration, hands off Venezuela, and I think I believe. I believe it's Saturday at 12 noon at the White House at Lafayette Square, I believe. But I have to check the information. Okay, thank you. All right, panelists, what's going on in your world community? I'm going to throw out a little phrase. I'd like to get your response to it. If I tell y'all that y'all need to go back home, what conjure up in your, in your mind when you hear someone telling someone else? They need to go back home when in reality they bang from the place where they trying to tell someone else to go back. Y'all response to the White House and the statement they telling um senators to and mostly women and sisters of from the community of color, quote unquote, they need to go back where they came from. What do y'all make of that statement? Start with you, brother Anthony. Yes. Uh to me, that statement means, uh, in my mind, 
that uh, that that that, uh, that that as far as Trump is concerned, uh, the U.S. is for Europeans only. They're colonial Europeans, and uh, it speaks to the fact very clearly that uh, that the uh, that the Constitution uh, that the rights enumerated in the Constitution were intended to apply to Europeans only. And uh, that's what that conjures up. And uh, this is uh, this is stolen land, like any other settler colony in the world, and belongs to the indigenous people of the uh, Western Hemisphere. And uh, and and it tramples on their right to be able to move and migrate to whatever part of this hemisphere they want to. And uh it speaks to the racism that has that characterizes the US and has characterized uh Trump's uh public career. Okay, Brother Haki, what that statement means to you? What what conjured up in your yep. mind when you hear such a statement? I I, I agree. With, I agree. I agree. Uh, one of the things there's a certain amount of historical amnesia when it comes to understanding history in America. I don't. Well, it's not just America, but throughout the Western world. Uh, one of the things when we talk about the the evolution of America, clearly, you know, America has always existed in its landmass. It originally belonged to indigenous people, and in fact, the kind of average kind of greed and kind of hatred. Uh, that was uh, manifested among, you know, Western leaders in terms of desire to get this land uh, resulted in the, the genocide against a whole group of people. And so, therefore, clearly, when you look at the history in terms of what this so-called landmass of America really really is, and clearly it doesn't belong to the European settlers. It belongs to the indigenous people, some of which who still survive despite these atrocities committed against them. So I think that when they start talking about this whole notion in terms of, you know, you need to go back where you're from, it speaks to a certain kind of amnesia, uh, clearly. Um, and also, it's just on a more basic level, Brother Africa, you know, one of the things is that when you talk about, you know, if you're telling, for instance, Ihan Omar, or you're telling Alexander Costa-Cortez, uh, Evelyn, or Evelyn Presley, or even Talib, Talib, um, um, Rashida Talib, if you're telling them to go back where they come from, uh, one, of the, one of the real ironies is that when you tell someone to go back where they come from, ultimately what's going to happen is that they're all going to say, well, we, I, I, come from, I come from Africa. So that's, if, I mean, if, if you want to get right to, to literally, if you want to get right down to in terms of go back to where you come from, then everybody comes from Africa. <laughs> so, to, But, of course, the kind of, the kind of ignorance, uh, the kind of, um, uh, of, the kind of um, lack of uh, clarity in terms of history, uh, a lot of times people like Trump wouldn't necessarily understand the nuances in terms of what it means to tell someone to go back where you're from. But I think Brother Anthony's right. Essentially what he's trying to say, what he's trying to communicate, is that it's all about the fact that if you're not white, you don't belong here. And, of course, when we look at the history, just in terms of you know Africans migrating across the Atlantic Ocean, there were those Africans who preceded the whites actually being here, those indigenous people, the Tahinas and so forth, who existed here prior to the European, European expansion, or existed here long before Europeans even got here. So to, for anyone to say, go back to where you're from, it seems to me it's a height of ignorance because any white person in America or any white person on any continent with the people, the original inhabitants of people of color, uh, to, for them to sit, tell them to go back where they're from 
speaks of kind of ignorance. But I think that only that kind of hubris can only exist to the extent that you've got some very stupid people in positions of power to even articulate such a thing. I understand poor white folks saying that kind of thing because they don't know any better. But what I what I find extremely distasteful is the fact that people in positions of power are supposed to have some education articulate such a line. Not only does it speak to the kind of racism which is so pernicious in society, but it speaks to the kind of ignorance in terms of the origin of human beings. So I think that clearly his intent was to belittle, to put down, um, you know, people people of color. I mean, that was his motivation. But in the process, he really exposed reality, which he doesn't even understand. That namely is that all people come from Africa, and I close with that. Thank you, Brother Hakeem and Brother Moses. Your response to this statement. Brother Moses, your response? I, I think I think um, it flows from an attitude of of uh, America, love it or leave it, um, um, which was popular during the Vietnam War, etc. Also, I mean, the Ku Klux Klan, you know, telling black people they should go back to Africa, etc. Um, it, it smacks of racism and and uh, and uh, it's it's uh, some kind of white narrow nationalist viewpoint, which which must be exposed for what it is. Um, it's racist and and uh, and it's, it's white supremacist. Thank you. Okay, hey panelists, um, I like to get y'all response to this situation. You know, many times people as human beings we have a sense to. To be a part of something, we want to belong to something, be a part of something. There are all kinds of classes that exist under a capitalist system. But I recently ran and called this video on YouTube, which I thought was really interesting, particularly given the timing of what's going on today and looking at the increase of pressure against African people and and and, and, and in the working class sectors of the very countries and nations, etc. But I thought it really interesting. I'd just like to get your response to this issue of what is this something a something positive? Is this something we all should be trying to strive for, or is this another tool to get up participating on the pressure by participating as being a member of this class and just and just you know benefiting themselves as a individual? And what I'm saying is that there was a YouTube um, video out there where it talked about the need to know and to have more Africans in America a part of the 1% class, the class of the 1% with all the wealth. What do y'all make of that? Is that something we should be all striving for? I need more Africans to uh, be a part of this 1% class. What is the connotation? What is the long-term implication politically? What is the political ramification of this kind of thought and going down that kind of path? Start with you, Brother Hockey. Yeah, well, the exploitation of African people could be more effectively uh, done if, in fact, you had Africans in positions of, uh, or at least having access to large amounts of money. Uh, it makes it like a system is, is germane, like the system is fair, like a system that that uh, if you, in fact, you work hard, that you too can achieve to be a billionaire. So I think it's part of a strategy. I think the problem is that once you buy into the strategy, what you do is you for, you 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 you, uh, you 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 increase. The, the length uh, or, or the longevity of the kind of uh, injustice 
you know, that humanity has been dealing with for a long, long time. The natural inclination for people on the left, people who are trying to move forward, is to try to create a new paradigm, a new way in terms of human interaction, new institutions that govern how human beings behave. Well, what they're seeking to do is by in, in, in empowering, you know, a few African people is to create a situation where these same institutions that are responsible for all this upheaval gets legitimized. And so if you legitimize that system, you legitimize the institution by having these wealthy African people, then it's easy to say, well, it's not for the system, the system is fine. So to the extent that any oppression exists, it, it doesn't really objectively exist, it only exists in your mind because you've got a few billionaires who happen to be of African descent. Well, by that logic, if you stop and look at Africa and you look at a few billionaires, you know, who, who, who got access to a lot of sums of money, clearly it's not the kind of situation that's favorable to the masses of African people on the continent. Uh, surely it benefits that individual, but it doesn't do nothing in terms of addressing wholesale historical uh, oppression African people face. But we understand that it is part of a strategy, and for anybody to buy into that strategy is very problematic. And that's one of the things I say to people who, who position is that, well, our thing in terms of, in terms of political discourse, a political movement in society, is all about you know let's create let's create a business and make lots of money. That's all and good, and that's fine. I mean, it's, it's, that's fine. But as a strategy, it, it needs to be questioned, because once you create a situation where it's all about the money, then not only do you have to play that game in which they want you to play, but you're in a position to not actually be in a position to actually empower people, which is supposedly why you're in it, involved in movement in the first place. So I think that we got to be very, very careful about that, but clearly that's part of a strategy and it's something that they've been uh, trying to implement for a long, long time, which is one of the reasons why they consistently point out that this person has wealth, this person has wealth, that person has wealth. It's somehow to legitimize the system. But of course, those of us on the left understand that a few billionaires who happen to be of African descent does nothing in terms of limiting the historical wrongs and oppression committed against African people, whether they reside in the U.S., whether they're in Africa, the Central South America, or the Caribbeans. Brother Afton, your response to this, this, this to increase Africans and Americans become part of this 1% class, what do, what do you make up that, that phenomenon and the implication of it? The implication is going to be an intensification of the class struggle because having more African millionaires uh, only increases the suffering of the African masses. Because uh, if you have rich, you have poor. And uh, so it's only going to intensify the class struggle even more and the suffering of the masses of African people. Uh, uh, Let's see the solution uh, that benefits uh, the African masses is an all-out struggle for scientific socialism and the elimination of the uh, of the petty bourgeois and bourgeois uh, class, uh, they uh, uh, they are a parasite uh, 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 on the African community, and they and they amass their wealth by exploiting the African masses, uh, and uh, and that is all. And uh, and Kwame used to point out that there are more Mercedes-Benz in uh, in Africa than there are on any other continent. And yet uh, uh, the masses of Africans are among the poorest people in the world. And so, and whenever you find uh, uh, a handful of of African millionaires and billionaires, 
the masses of African people are suffering in dire straits. So, uh, so really, having a few more uh, 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 millionaires, or even a lot more for that matter, will not alleviate the problem that the African masses suffer from. Okay, to the listening audience, this is Africa on the Move. We're going to come in with Brother Moses, let him respond to our questions, and we're going to a station break in about a few minutes, and after that, we will have our sister, Pam Africa. She will come on, give us an update on what's going on with Mumia. you have any questions you'd like to raise or have as it relates to Mumia situation, you can get it by calling in at one three two three six seven nine. Oh eight four one. She'll be on very shortly. We have her in the, in the queue right now. So, Brother Moses, we can go to you. Get your response to African more Africans coming part of the one percent class. After that, we go to station break, and then we'll be back. That's just a pair Africa, and we're going to do a update on what's going on with that brother Mumia. Brother Moses, your response to the question. Yeah. Yes, I think, you know, the question is, what a, is black capitalism the answer, basically? And black cap- capitalism is the problem, black, white, peak, whatever. Capitalism, the relentless pursuit of profit at the expense of the masses of people. And uh, this is this is what's empowering, it's, it's enriching the 1% and impoverishing the 99%. It's just this capitalism, and uh, it's a the system of socialized production where all the workers are working, working, working. It's socialized production, but it's private appropriation. It's individuals take the benefits of that labor and use it for their own interests. And having black capitalists on top in the one percent does nothing for the masses of, of black people. And this is the problem that uh, has been boiling out already. I thank you. Okay, on that note, uh, we're going to pause for the calls. When we come back, we're going to bring in our sister pan Africa. And we, too, on Africa on the Moon, would like to acknowledge the belated Earth Day and birthday to our sister Asana. We love you. You are the true example of resistance. And if we're going to create more symbols and examples and women that our people need, It'll be more Sister Asada. Stay strong, Sister. We're with you. So we're going to pause for this cause. When we come back, we'll be with Pan Africa. She'll be giving us an update on Mumia Abu Jamal. We'll be right back. This is Africa on the Move.
that would, uh, and they was trying to make this law, and know that anybody who puts out any, like this show right here, you would be subject to be locked up because you're talking about Mumia. And uh, anyone that has a book or anything or promoting any of his books that he had out, I mean, this sounds crazy, but this is what they were doing. That any books that he had out and you was doing a book party for Mumia or, you know, anything for Mumia, you could get locked up for. It sounds crazy, but it was real. We had to battle these people, you know, um, in Harrisburg and uh, because they was going to make this law. Um, we beat that down. At the same time, when, while we, uh, when we won the victory and all uh, for this, I get a phone call from Johanna. And, oh, let me tell you, this came about as Mumia being a commencement speaker at Goddard College. The FOP, the Fools on Parade, the Fraternal Order Police, they must be so far behind because this isn't the first time Mumia did a commencement speech. He did them at Yale. He did them at Princeton. He did it at Catholic schools. He did it at private schools. And these things was, you know, and he did these commencement speeches outside the country. Um, but when the government here or in Harrisburg heard about it, that's when they wanted to introduce this law that anybody who, um, you know, had Mumia speak or do anything on behalf of Mumia and all uh, is subject to go to jail. Well, we beat that down. The power of people wound up in a court case. Um, um, attorneys from uh, one of Mumia's attorney, Brett Brody, Bob Bull, um, the uh, people from Prison Legal News, um, a lot of people got involved in this, and uh, because it was a dangerous president that they was getting ready to set. And uh, so when we won that victory, it took us a while to win it, a couple months, to win this victory, to knock that down, um, the judge has stated that, you know, this was, you know, I, I'm paraphrasing because I don't have a paper from me. This is crazy. And, oh, you cannot, and, oh, because Maureen Faulkner, who they say is, I mean, who is the wife of Officer Faulkner, whose mummy is accused of killing, and, oh, uh, she gets upset when she hears Mumia's voice. And also they want to introduce this law. So um, we had the victory thing because we knocked that down. We get a call from Johanna Fernandez, who did a documentary on Mumia, who's also the person who heads the campaign to free Mumia um, and teaches Mumia in her classes at um, Carnegie Mellon, and now she's at Baruch. She teaches his classes. Her and one of the attorneys had went, to visit Mumia, and we got word that Mumia had just been, she had got word Mumia had just been transferred to the hospital. And we get this call. So now we're not but about um, half an hour, 45 minutes away from Mumia, where in any other case we've been two to three hours away from Mumia. So when we get the word, we head over there right away. And Mumia was almost into a diabetic coma. Now, how did this happen? And uh, during the time that we were fighting for, the, you know, to stop 
people from being subjected to this madness that the, um, that the uh, government was cooking up here and all through the Fraternal Order Police. Mumia also had been diagnosed with um, hepatitis C. And um, what had happened with Mumia, um, when we found out he had hepatitis C, there was a black doctor by the name of Joseph Harris, who was a former member of the Black Panthers and all who worked with Doctors Without Borders. And because at first they wasn't saying what it was that Mumia had, right? And when this doctor went up and saw Mumia, that's when he said he had seen this before when he was in Africa. Mumia has hepatitis C, right? Um, And this was after they had done a lot of things that they had did to Mumia. Um, A brother looked at Mumia one day in the prison, and he couldn't believe what he was seeing. Mumia had blew up three times his size, and uh, um, the largest uh, uniform that they had in the prison was too small for Mumia. And and Mumia's a tall brother, but he's not a big brother. Um, He had blew up just as bad. And uh, Mumia's skin had started coming off his face, and uh, his ear was peeling away from his face. His neck looked like chicken skin um he had um he had fevers and stuff so they rushed him to the hospital and um you know we get there we wind up having a press conference and um a couple times after that mumia winds up in prison it's a lot of stories so i'm trying to you know make it shorter and take people through different phases of it so we just whipped them down from the thing, the uh, first thing, the legal thing with Mumia. So here we are in the hospital, and uh, um, Mumia's on one side of the wall, and uh, when they're doing emergency work for him, we're on the other side unknowingly. And the reason why I'm saying that, I'll bring it back to where we are at right now. There was no confrontations in the, in the prison, in the hospital. We knew Mumia was in the next room. And, uh, you know, um, the following day we had a huge press conference there, um, they keep Mumia there uh, in the hospital for a few days, and they send him back to um, the prison. And, again, he got real sick. And between this, this is when Dr. Joseph Harris comes in, and he diagnosed Mumia with what he had. The reason why Mumia wound up with the, um, in the diabetic coma, because they was mistreating Mumia. And all you know, medically, they was giving him things that blew his body up. What they gave Mumia caused him to have these skin problems and things. Um, Dr. Harris testified in court. We wound up having to go to court in Scranton. When we went to court in Scranton, you already got one judge that said these people was out of control. And uh, the next judge, when we're in Scranton, um, number one, the DOC didn't want Mumia to come down into court because Mumi was filing about getting the hepatitis C cure treatment, which was $1,000 a pill, and you had to take it for 90 days. They was trying to stop him and other people from getting the hepatitis C cure. But Mumia's case is there. During Mumia's case, we find out that we already knew that in order for them not to give Mumia the medication and go to court and they turn it down on one level and Mumia appealed to the next court level is when we find out that 
the doctors who signed papers saying that mumia did not um didn't need any treatment you know um was a lie and that's how mumia wound up appealing that when he appealed it he wound up before this judge this judge um demanded that mumia come in demanded that all the evidence be put there what we found out in the courtroom was that one of the uh doctors that was uh involved in this whole thing and uh was arguing with some of the DOC people in the yard in the uh, parking lot while we were waiting outside to go in for the trial. We just saw three white men arguing, and we didn't think anything of it. But one white man walked away real fast. That's all it looked like to us. But when we got into the courtroom, what was happening, one of the white men was on the stand, which was one of the doctors, right? Um Bob Ball asked him, he says, is this your statement? Because the statement was stating like Mumia didn't need no, um, no um, medic, you know, didn't need no cure or anything, right? When um, the, uh, the lawyer read to people what, you know, you know, what the statement said, the doctor said, I didn't sign that. So Bob Ball thought maybe he had the wrong paper. So Bob Bull read it to him, and all he said, "That's he said, that's a signature there, but it's not my signature." And also, Bob went to ask him what was happening there. He said he told these, you know, the DOC people earlier that day. He said we got into an argument in the parking lot because they wanted him to go along with what it was that they were saying, and he was saying that he wasn't because it wasn't right. So you find this out. One another thing that we found out we didn't know and we couldn't get for the longest the protocol for in uh for the prison protocol for dealing with hepatitis C. Okay, so in the courtroom the uh lawyers asked for the uh protocol, the DA uh the Department of Correction was refusing to give it to them. The judge said this is public property. Everybody should have that. And also they said they would give it to the judge, but they wouldn't give it to the lawyer. The judge said absolutely not. This judge's name is Mariani, and we're in Scranton, Pennsylvania, Klan land. Um, so the judge told them not only uh, was you going to give it to him, but you was going to give it to them. So they said you, they have to turn it right back. And also the judge said no, and he wanted to read it. When he read it, he sat back in his chair. He said, i got to take a break. He come back. The protocol calls for anybody with hepatitis C in order to get the cure and I'm not saying the may be cure, the could I'm saying the cure for hepatitis C, your liver had to be sixty percent calcified. Meaning you got cirrhosis have to have cirrhosis of the liver. You had to be bleeding from your esophagus. And all the veins in your chest, the blood veins would have to be burst in your chest. This is when you get the hepatitis C cure. And uh, the judge was outraged by this and outraged by, you know, um, the manipulations of papers, the lying back and forth. And um, he determined that Mumia was to get the actual cure. And the DA, uh, Department of Correction, they said, well, we're going to appeal. The judge said, you got the right to appeal. He says, but this man is going to get this treatment right away. So that's how Mumia got the cure, because a judge...
followed the color of law, how he didn't wind up with the situation with, um, um, like you or anyone else who spoke out on Mamiya and uh, would want, was subjected to jail time, and uh, that judge understood that this was crazy and it was unfair and ruled against them. Now here we are again. You know, Mumia has never, he got the hepatitis C cure, but the effects of that, when they gave Mumia the cure, the um, guards came up to him and they said, we got good news and we got bad news. So we'll give you the good news first. And uh, you're going to get the hepatitis C medication and all um, for your cure. And uh, the second thing is you have cirrhosis of the liver. Mumia said that, you know, went from, you know, I'm getting the cure to boom. And uh, cirrhosis of the liver is a death sentence, especially when you're inside the prison and you're not getting the proper nutrition and you got to depend upon these people to do what it is. Fast forward where we are at today. And uh, um, Mumia, who is still itching from head to toe and uh, um putting Vaseline on his body from head to toe, every crack that you can put in three times a day. He puts a jar of Vaseline on him to ease, to ease the itching. Mumia's skin is not like it was before where it turned black all over and he was encased in this uh, substance that was covering his whole body. Um, and uh, his skin looks beautiful for what you can see. And uh, but under his arms, and uh, is a um, big patch of skin that has gotten thicker and is very painful to the touch. And it, like everything else, is it's just excru- uh, excruciatingly. Mumia developed glaucoma. Glaucoma is a side effect of one of the side effects of the uh, hepatitis C and the treatment that they're giving him that causes brain damage and uh, it also causes suicidal tendencies. It also um, causes um, where, you know, you can't actually think and it's a whole list of other things that it causes, right? And uh, also Mumia was getting to the point less he can see, less and less. And, uh, And they would not give him you know, they gave him different prescription glasses, and then finally they had to come out and tell him that he had glaucoma and he had cataracts. He had the cataracts and the glaucoma, and they had to get a operation for the cataracts and, you know, another one for the glaucoma, but they wasn't giving it to him. So we've been putting pressure on them. Mumia wrote a commentary out where he describes what it is that he said. He said, imagine putting a dark pair of glasses on and smearing it with very thickly with Vaseline. He says, that's what I see. So we put out information, you know, on that and getting people, and we're trying to push to get him the treatment that he needs. We prefer that they don't be allowed to do it. And, uh, but in the, um, you have to go through them and an outside hospital that they choose to do this operation. And they wasn't giving him, you know, the proper timing for it, right? So we put a lot of pressure on him. So now they're saying that he'll get it, but they don't, they're not saying when. Suzanne Ross went to visit him last week, and she was looking to see Mumia blind walking, you know, towards with somebody, you know, helping him, or him standing there and her coming over to him. 
Mumia walked. He said he saw her from across the room. He walked all the way over to her, greeted her, and she wanted to know how he did it. He said, because I saw you, Suzanne. And uh, so what happened there in between the time that he wrote the commentary about him not being able to see, he had decided something so deep inside the ancestors, spirit, God, whatever you want to call it, told him, don't let them give you them steroids. He refused to take the steroids. And a few days later, he was able to see Suzanne because we had just put the commentary out. And then him not taking the steroids, he was able to see across the floor. But we're pushing for him to have this um, the operation that he needs because we don't know how temporary this eyesight thing is. This is a man, a freedom fighter they tried to kill in the streets of Philadelphia on December the 9th, 1981. And uh, a cop was killed by the name of James Ramp, and it's a worldwide movement. And documentaries and films show that it was impossible for Mumia to have committed this crime. The lies and things that went back and forth and are in the courts and manipulation of your evidence, the actual throwing away of evidence. And, uh, you know, all this was, you know, in Mumia's case, judicial and prosecutorial, you know, misconduct. So this is where we're at with Mumia, you know, right now with the blindness. And, uh, and then another thing happened, Black History Month, a black judge, a black judge by the name of Leon Tucker, a Republican judge. The cases before him on Mumia on whether or not Mumia was to get an appeal so he can go back in the court and, um, you know, fight his case. And uh, this judge did a two-year study on this case. And out of the two-year study, he came up with the thing of stating Mumia, he granted Mumia the right to appeal. Now, we had a DA here, Krasner. Some people might know it because, you know, they're pushing him around the United States. In fact, he was also over in Germany and all talking about, you know, I think they got some political aspirations for um, this civil rights lawyer, he says, and all who battled for, you know, black folks' rights and, you know, things, who became the DA and all who, when he said when he became DA, he was actually throwing out all the old DAs because they were foul and they was corrupt, and that was true. And uh, and um, he proceeded to do that. And uh, he also um, just wrote, um, um, him and some other lawyers got together the DA of Philadelphia and stated that the death penalty has got to go. And they're all doing legislation, you know, on this. So he does some good things. He also let a lot of uh, our black youth out, you know, our youth period out, and all on the juvenile lifers, and or if you had committed a crime as a juvenile and you had served, um, well, a lot of people, I know they had did 40 years, and, or, you know, um, before they got out, you know, on this. And all this is happening on his watch. But you also, because you have people say that this DA is a good DA. He does great things. And, or, you know, and if, you know, you push him to do something on Mumia, then, you know, they're going to get rid of him. And that's weak talk. That's weak talk. How do you say everybody but? You know, it's, it's, it's all. 
You know, if he do that, that's criminal. We're supposed to raise the consciousness and raise war around that. But people aren't at this particular point here in Philadelphia. You know, so this judge, he grants Mumia the right to appeal. He had that case so tight that you couldn't get around it. The lawyers and things in Philadelphia couldn't believe that this man had did what he did. Number one, he went up against the Supreme Courts in Philadelphia. He went up against the federal courts in Philadelphia. He went up against the FOP, the DOC. He went up against all these racist, crazy people who want to say, die, nigga, die. You ain't dead yet. We coming up with another thing. And, uh, you know, this judge went up against all of that when he made that he put his life on the front line, and this white liberal law, DA appealed it. This is during the time that, you know, Mumia's in there sick. He knows everything about Mumia. When he was running for DA, we gave him his case. When he became DA, he said any cases where he can put before him, where you can sell an injustice in it, he'll take it and he'll deal with that. Not Mumias, not Mumias, when his staff, his staff was Mumias supporters who rallied in the streets with us and all know the case. And I'm people in positions, but they're not doing In fact, when I walk by them, a lot of them act like they don't even see me. But I refuse to allow them to do that, you know, because I wanted to put more information on Mumia. But you had, you, you're in this position right now where... All you see is corruption in dealing in Mumia's case. You know, when they tried to get rid of him by silencing him, because, uh, silence him, you know, legally, and this was crazy. You know, when they tried to kill him in the hospital. And uh, first, when they had him on death row over 30-something years. And uh, they tried to kill him that way. That failed. They failed with this other, you know, um, thing. They failed with the um, hepatitis C. And, uh, you know, they failed when you, the appeal went up and uh, before Judge Tucker. And uh, they failed there because Judge Tucker said that he should have, an, you know, um, an appeal, you know. And here we are now, the voice of the voiceless, and uh, who does commentaries around the world, they figured they'll take his eyesight. They'll take his, they can't silence him, so they'll take his eyesight. And what do we say, Brother Lee? Not on our watch. Not on our watch. And all people, Malcolm, Martin, Mega, all these brothers and all that stood on the front line for us and wouldn't bow down. We didn't know their plot. We didn't. We, we knew that they was going to kill them, and uh, we didn't know how or when. With Momia, we know how. We know when they. You know. You know. It's when now. This is happening right now. It is up to us, all conscious people, to rise up now. This is Malcolm. This is every freedom fighter that's been out there. This is Kwame Nkrumah. This is, you know, the list goes on and on and on. Paris, uh, Brother Lumumba and uh, Patrice Lumumba. This is him all there before us, and we got a chance to do something. We got a chance to stop it. Check this one out. I'm at... Um, 
an event for my family and on my two sisters, Janet and Janine, who you'll be having on your show later um, in the month or the beginning of the next month, um, who just got out of jail after 41 years. We're doing a program, and Johanna Fernandez sent word up to me that, you know, did you hear the great news? And I'm like, what? And, uh, you know, is Mumia coming home or something? She said, no. And uh, the three-panel judge, remember I told you when Judge Mariani told told them to get Mumia the cure, that the DOC and the DOC said, we're going to appeal it. They said, you can appeal it if you want. That's your right. But he's getting this, you know, he's going to get this medication now. Well, the appeal finally come through. A three-panel jury. I mean, judges, federal judges, stated very clearly that the DOC deliberately stopped Mumia from getting medication that could have, um, you know, prevented this. So I'm saying here you got the plot, you got the plan, you got their people saying everything that they're doing is wrong. Now, Krasner... And uh, who is the DA right now? And people tell me, he can't get Mumia out. He just let out, I think, the third person on judicial and prosecutorial misconduct. He want to clean his record up. He need to bring Mumia's case because he got it. It reeks of it. And uh, his office had to go through every box of evidence dealing with Mumia and uh dealing with Judge Tucker because we appoint Mumia's attorneys pointed out that there's evidence that's in the in the boxes that they refuse to let us see. Evidence that can prove that Mumia's innocent. Well one of the things that that uh, that they found so I'm saying they have to read through everything. So all the facts that the bullet that shot uh that killed James um office I'm getting all yeah, wait a minute, ramp is the mood uh, one, Faulkner, uh, Officer Faulkner, which um, was in their possession, that they said that they had evidence to show that Mumia killed Faulkner. Heck, the evidence disappears. It's not in our hands. It's in the government hands, the DAs, and all who was there to prosecute Mumia, to send him the death row. The evidence is missing. And, uh, you know, Judge Marani, when he goes through the things, he finds stuff that was missing that should have been there. But in the meantime, while you're going through this stuff looking for the evidence that you had, to, um, certain evidence that had to be presented in court, you know, you got to read everything else. Judge Mariani granted Mumia that appeal so that he can take all this evidence and uh, to show he did not have a fair trial, the conspiracy, and uh, to the next level so that he can get released. The DA blocked that for a while. It wasn't until black students at Morgan State University, I didn't know them, and uh, saw um, this thing where they was inviting Krasner to Yale to be the keynote speaker, Yale, a prestigious law school, to be the keynote speaker there at the rebellious lawyering conference. 
this sister saw this, found out what had what this DA had just did to Mamiya, and because uh, she heard it, she might have heard it on your show. She might have heard it on anybody's show. She might have heard it on the Internet. Ain't no power like the power of the people when the power of the people don't stop. So this sister sitting in Morgan University reads this. She called her friend over in Yale. Yale called somebody um, in Yale. Then somebody called somebody at Stanton. And uh, then, you know, all these young lawyers is getting together, right? And uh, they know it's wrong. They're talking about it. Then one of the young um, student lawyers called Johanna Fernandez, and also they get together and they write this brief and they put all the law together and they go to the um, head of the Yale Lawyer Rebellious Conference, presents all this evidence before them. They disinvited him, and Mumia wound up being the keynote speaker that day instead of Krasner. So, um, you know, I throw that in there to say that people who want to get involved in this, the different levels that people, you know, can come in, and we send our children to school to learn these laws, and these children is the top of their classes, and they had other lawyers that, um, you know, came in, and, uh, I mean, lawyers from across the United States. This was a huge event at Yale, and when Mumia did his speech there, and uh, he didn't talk about Mumia. He could talk about the conditions of us, the conditions inside the prison and outside. He got a standing ovation. These people, went, once this went out, it was going everywhere. So people started to um, put a lot more pressure. So Krasner drops the appeal. But I'm saying he's holding up because, to me, it's not even about the appeal. Mumia shouldn't have to go to hell to court. Mumia should be released based on judicial and prosecutorial misconduct. Mumia should be released based on the fact that it's clear and it's evident that once Mumia came off a of death row, they said that for, for over 30 years, they thought they was going to kill Mumia on death row. But the power of the people took Mumia off of death row. It wasn't until he got into general population did he start getting sick. It wasn't until they took his blood did he wind up with hepatitis C. Now, there could have been two chances that they took his blood, and he wandered up with the hepatitis C on December the 9th, 1981, when Mumia was beat, head rammed into a um, into a water plug, spit wide open, shot, you know, um, you know, in his chest, and uh, um, wound up in a hospital where the cops were stepping on, um, you know, the bag, his urine bag, and all, uh, you know, when they tried to kill him there, and all, uh, you know, and they failed. They failed once they put him in jail, and all, uh, for so that lethal injection that they was prom- prom- uh, uh, promising to give him, and all, uh, to the point when he had the hepatitis C, and oh my God, I thought he was dead. I thought I was seeing a dying man, and uh, I thought, 
I was, you know, constantly putting out strong evidence, you know, but what I'm looking at, what I'm seeing, uh, my, my brother, his ear is coming off from his face. His skin is encased, in, you know, the size of him blew up, the size of him shrunk down from as huge as he can get. I don't know what kind of skin this man got that can blow up like that and then come down and he be skinny as a rail. And this brother during this whole time continued to write commentaries around the world, continued to write best-selling books and all this pain, still in this pain. They done figured out, damn it, we can't stop him that way. We'll take his eyesight. It ain't time to be playing no games with these people. Mumia need to come out there. He need to come out there now. The key to Mumia coming out there is their legal system. Prosecutorial and judicial misconduct. We're riding up, you know, like Brother Fred Hampton say, we ride. We're on our way to the Department of Correction in Meckensburg. You know, we were going up there to demonstrate about the conditions, you know, about getting Mumia the cure, uh, getting him the um, cataract surgery that's needed, and uh, because, uh, all right, the cataract surgery that's needed, and uh, but we wound up getting this information on Friday where these judges said, because if you remember when we was calling them, they said they're trying to kill Mumia through medical neglect. What did the judge Mariani say? And oh no, he's going to go in. He's y'all can appeal. Can you imagine if Mumia didn't have the cure and they just getting to the appeal today? I mean Friday, Mumia would have been dead if it wasn't for the people, the people, all the people who stood up, who had the courage to stand up. We need you to really stand up now. That action that we're taking up there, that press conference that we're taking up there, and uh, is one that people, and uh, if you can't get up there, and uh, you know, you can, you know, send um, phone number, you know, shut the lines down in that prison from your homes. Um, the oh, dad, gotta move my papers. Where the heck did I put this paper? Mm. Um. You know, you know, call in, shut the lines down, because as many of us that can come, we're coming up there. We're demanding the treatment for Mumia. Somebody said, you can't up there to go up there and demand that we release them. I sorry. We understand that. We can say that in words, demand the release, but we know you got to deal with that DA. You got to deal with these state representatives and uh, and lawmakers and things. We got to deal with these churches in Philadelphia that don't rise up and say anything. And uh, Martin Luther King Jr., um, Dick Gregory, Reverend Laurie, and uh, all these freedom fight- fighters and stuff did a resolution for Mumia that stated that they had investigated the case. This was in the um, the late 90s, but it don't change. They all said that Mumia, from the investigation is checked, is innocent. He should be released from jail. That haven't changed. That spirit, that fight of the SCLC was there then. It's not there now. You know, the NAACP. That spirit that they had that said that Mumia and all was innocent, 
he deserved, um, you know, uh, you know, another trial, and uh, um, the NAACP, the Black Congressional Caucus, all of them is saying these things. It's like, I mean, they, you know, they were saying that then they're quiet now in this Trump era. In this Trump era, you can't get them to say nothing. And I put all this information out on our radio in Philadelphia today. It's nothing new, but it's like, what's happening right now? And not a minister called me. Not a state representative called me, except Vanessa Brown, who, because of her position of standing up for at that hepatitis C time and movie time, they framed her and got her kicked out of Harrisburg. But she's here. None of the rest of them, they didn't stand for her. They're not standing for Mamiya. These people are feeding, are living, driving cars, eating off of our money. And they refuse to do it. I want no favor. Don't, you, ain't, you know, we don't need favors. We need justice. We need you to do the right thing. And that not only goes for people in Philadelphia, but this is people from around the world who's been involved in this. They got to act like they never acted before or act like they acted in the past. And, uh, and what made the NAACP move? What made SCLC move? What made the Black Congressional Caucus move? Was people. Was people. Whenever they did the right thing, it was because people pushed it and made it happen. And uh, we talking about a murder here, y'all. We talking about a black freedom fighter, a proven black freedom fighter a true humanitarian that they're outright killing. They're torturing to death before our very eyes. Before our very eyes. And I'm asking people to please rise. Yes. Let me just bring my panelists. They may have a few questions or comments they want to make. And then I want to end the program with telling our people what they can do to support Mumia. But right now, let me bring my panelists in. Right now, we bring Brother Haki. Brother Haki, any questions or comments for Sister Pam? Well, Sister Pam, it's always good hearing you. You know, um, when you say Afri- Africans on the move, you're absolutely correct, Sister. And I want to thank right. you for coming Africans on the show. Africans on the move. <laughs> now, listen, uh, you know, one of the things is that, you know, the treatment of, of African people, particularly African people who stand for something, who, at least who have the potential in terms of reaching a large number of African people, are always treated very poorly. In prisons, I'm reminded of the fact that Nelson Mandela, uh, in terms of working on the lime, the lime uh, mines, uh, he lost the ability to tear up. His tear ducts were actually blocked by that lime. Um, because mm-hmm. recently, you know, recently they got this young boy um, who's a rapper. Uh, I think they call him ASAP Rocky or something. But anyway, this young boy is under, being held in Sweden under horrible conditions, and it's very interesting because this young boy has potential to reach meeting the means of people in terms of his craft. And then I'm, of course, reminded of Mumi Abu Jamal in terms of, you know, his, his impact, the things he's been able to do despite the incarceration. And so I understand in terms of, you know, that the poverty treatment of, of you know, of, you know uh, intelligent, aggressive, progressive, progressive African peoples, I understand that this treatment is often sparse, is often handed out to such people. 
But one of the questions I want to ask you, this is Sister Pam. Uh, you know, you talked about uh, this, this, the the conspiracy between the DOC and the the doctor in terms of the DOC actually forging, apparently forging this doctor's uh, name mm-hmm. on some order. Is there some movement in terms of bringing charges against these DOC officials in terms of the kind of malfeasance uh, 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 that they participated in? Mumi has filed a lawsuit, you know, um, against the DOC, dealing with every bit of the information that, and more, because there's a whole lot more to, um, you know, to it, of what went on during that time. Mumi has filed the lawsuit against, you know, each and every, you know, last segment of everything that I um, talked um, talked about. And, um, you know, and we support that lawsuit and, you know, how... We, um, I don't know, is that answering your question? Yeah, I'm just wondering. I mean, it seems to me what he did was criminal. I mean, clearly, you know, you well, for, number one, you forged your doctor's uh, initials on that on the document. Right. Clearly that was criminal. And I'm just wondering, is anybody going after them criminally? I mean, for doing that, these are DOC officials. Because clearly that's, I mean, no. you know, uh, no, they, 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 so they're getting away with it. Is that what you're saying? Not a one of them has, you know, um, and we have put it out there over and over again, and I explained to Mr. Krasner at an event and all, because he was saying, well, you know, that's something that had to be filed, you know, um, somewhere um, um, with the uh, prison. And, um, you know, he said, you know, that's out of our jurisdiction. But it was his jurisdiction that sent them there. That was my point to him when he was saying he had nothing to do with it. You sent, not him per se, and all, but the DA's office is the one that framed him and sent him there. So anything that happened to him, you know, he should be held responsible for. And all, but the only thing, in order to say it, you know, the judge Mariani to me, and all because it happened in his courtroom. It happened on his watch. I think because if it was one of us and all had did that in that courtroom, we could have been locked up and all for, um, was it, falsifying evidence, you know, um, you know, for, for, you know, for the wrong that was discovered in that courtroom. He didn't say that I'm referring this to, um, you know, the DA's office and all, because what was happening here is criminal. He just, you know, uh, granted the appeal, got Mumia the, um, you know, the uh, cure that he needed, and uh, but haven't stopped the results of, you know, them not doing what it was they're supposed to do. The only thing I know that's happening, you know, right now, and uh, is, um, you know, Mumia's filing, you know, filing the um, the lawsuits against them, and uh, for what they're doing to him. And us putting out the information so that people can know because when the lawsuits come up, we will need support, you know, there as well, too. And uh, um, and putting the information out to people. And, you know, I really thank you for that. And uh, because, like you said, it's criminal. It's criminal. And, you know, and, you know, although you have judges that, you know, do, you know, expose these things, they're also supposed to be responsible to lock criminals up when they come before them, especially when the crime happened, you know, before you. And on the mere fact that, you know, the, um, you know, the cure, you know, 
they refused to give us the protocol for years because the people had seen that protocol. How insane is these people to write something up about your liver having to be 60% calcified? And uh, and then if you was too sick already, then you're too sick, you got to be close to death. Then they said that if you are too sick, what's the use in giving you the medicine? You know, it's just criminal, yes. Sister Pam, one, a different a different question. I want you to go way back. Uh, there was, I believe, her name was. Uh, she was a former prostitute, Cynthia White. I believe her name was. Cynthia, uh, Cynthia White is one of the prosecutes, and Veronica Jones is another one. So, which one you okay, talking about? There, there was there was some there was some prostitute who who uh, falsely testified against Mumia Abu Abu Jamal. I'm just wondering whatever happened to her. Uh, do you, do you know, recall the woman um, I'm talking about? Yes, I know you're talking about Veronica Jones. We also, people can look up the film Case for Reasonable Doubt, and uh, you can uh, go to YouTube and uh, Google it, and uh, uh, that's about Mumia's case with his prostitute, uh, prostitute, you know, um, state, um, and she, she, she became a great friend of mine. You know, I call her mother, you know, um, around her birthday and stuff. Her birthday is the day before Mumia's birthday, birthday, and she died on December the 8th, the day before, um, you know, um, they tried to kill Mumia on December 9th, 81. And, uh, but this sister, she was a heroine. I mean, she was a, a hero, heroine, <laughs> and, uh, you know, to me. And uh, she stood up. Poor, unfortunate, and uh, we also have a documentary that we done on Veronica Jones. Because when people see her in this documentary, because what they did, they brought her in the courtroom, and um, she didn't know that she was being brought in for Momia's case. When she when they brought her in the courtroom, she sat down, she was looking, and two weeks be two weeks before they brought her in the courtroom, she said some some they told her, her lawyers was there to see her. So she go out there to see lawyers and no, she's poor. You know you know the uh private defenders I mean public defenders don't come and visit you. So she going out there and what it was it was the police and all dressed in, you know, regular clothes. And uh um they told her that, you know, she's in jail and uh and the uh one was a um uh, something with a, with a gun. She didn't have it, but she was in the area where the gun was, you know, gun was at where they arrested her, and there was drugs involved in that. So she in there doing her time, and I met her in the prison because I was arrested on a contempt case, and we used to run, um, you know, run in the yard together, and we had a court order where we can, where our family can bring us cases of fruits and things. We was getting organic cases of fruits and our lemons, oranges, bananas, onions and stuff. That's a whole nother case. But we was getting that anyway. I met her and we was walking and she told me after about a week of me and her hanging out, she said that um who she was. She said that she was there on the night that Mumia and all got shot. She said Mumia didn't kill um kill the cop, right? She says, um you know, um, she had filed a, you know, filed um, that night, you know, because she was one of the prostitutes in the area. She told what she saw, and um, she was telling me Cynthia White, this is the prosecutor that said 
Mumia shot police officer Faulkner. She was telling me, she said, they told her that they didn't want her to come down on the first floor and her either on the first floor where we were at because we would kill them. And all because Cynthia, you know, was saying that Mumia killed Faulkner, right? So she tells me this. I get, um, I'm, I'm going home in a couple of days. I tell Mumia's attorney and all, and what she said. I didn't see her again until I saw her in the courtroom a year later. And um, she's, you know, that day in the courtroom, it was just real strange because you know they real crazy acting. This day when we got into the courtroom, they only let a few people in, and cops was along the walls. They was in the back. It was plain clothes, white cops standing in the back, and on um, they were standing. You know, there you knew. I said, oh God, they're gonna whoop our asses here today. Excuse me if I wasn't supposed to say that. My bad. Um, but you know, I'm saying, you know, I'm thinking that they're gonna whip us. You know, you know, beat us up in that courtroom. They have done that before, and all uh, you know, so we bracing for that. So all of a sudden, they announced that you know the next witness on the stand would be Veronica Jones, and I'm like Ronnie, and I look, she come out, and she's looking like she's real confused, like you know, um, she looks over there where Mumia's at. She looked back at um. Um, you know, the judge, because she's thinking she's being brought down there for her trial. So that's why she was confused looking. So they wanted her, they they told her up in the prison that if she would say that Mumia shot Faulkner, and uh, they will let her go. We will give you the same deal that we offered Cynthia White. And, uh, you know, and, you know, they told us, you think about it, and all, because she wouldn't give him no answer, right? And all, so she says she's sitting there, and she's getting ready to lie. She says it in this, you, you got to see, case for reasonable doubt. Danny Glover's in that one, too. Angela Davis is in that one, you know, as well. Um, you know, um, you know, talking about the case of Mumia. Um, but she states this. And she's sitting on the stand, and she looks over there at Mumia. She said, I'm looking at a man I've never seen in my life, and they want me to lie on him. You know, she said she couldn't do it. Well, she had started to, and then she said to the judge, they offered me the same, and they took her off the stand. And uh, she never got a chance to finish it. I think it might have been 10, 15 Years later, and uh, um, they, because um, we had been searching for her, um, Veronica surfaces, and um, she said that she got a good job, her children that they had threatened to take away from her. She had a newborn baby. That baby wasn't, um, not a newborn. She was less than a year old, and she had two other daughters that was toddlers then. Now, and uh, she's to pill off her community. She got all kinds of awards from her community for services that she was doing, you know, you know, within the community. She was getting ready to get married. She had one that was graduating from high school. One was going to college. And, uh, you know, everything going good for her. She says, and she got this thing, you know, that's bothering her, that she did not finish saying that they, you know, they wanted me to lie. And, uh, you know, she got scared, she said, when she saw them people that came, the cops that came up to the prison, 
they was the ones, the white ones that were standing at the back of the door, standing there center, you know, it, you know, all the way in the back, but in the center where she can see them. And the cops around, you know, think she's looking over there. She see a few of us. I mean, because they only let a few of us in the courtroom that day. And because uh, they thought that she was going to flip, and they did have some media in there, and all, uh, but it was their media. Any media that would show any sympathy to Mamiya, they didn't allow in. But um, she came back and she did that film, and um, they didn't stop at that. And uh, you know, when she came back and took the stand to testify on behalf of Mamiya, and uh with this whole change in her life, her, her man didn't know anything about her past or anything, and she, um, you know, told him before she left, you know, what she was getting ready to do, and, um, no, because he beat her up afterwards. Um, he, um, they arrested her on the stand for nothing. The judge says, um, same judge that was on the stand that, you know, had her taken off the stand, um, the same judge that told them to take her from out there when she was getting ready to switch her story up, her DA, and uh, she's, you know, she's dealing with them. The judge says that, are you saying that you lied? And uh, she said, yes, I am. And uh, he said, do you know for lying, doing a, um, you know, um, what is the word? I can't think of it, that she can get locked up for perjury. That she, you know, uh, you saying you purged, you know, you purged yourself that you was lying back then. She said, "Yes, I am." And uh, he called the lawyer, uh, uh, the lawyer, because she came in with a lawyer. He said, "Talk with her," and uh, and explain to her that she can go to jail. She said, "I know." And uh, talk to her. He asked him to take her from the side and talk. She said, "I don't have to go anywhere." She says, "I feel bad about what I did, but I'm here now to." face, whatever it is that I have, you know, all of a sudden, you know, here come these two cops with warrants from Jersey from a shoplifting, a shoplifting, something that she said that they had dropped the charges on her from, you know, way back, and, uh, you know, some five, six, seven years, you know, before then, they came in and arrested her on the stand. Let me tell you, we were able to go outside. She had two um, two different warrants they had on her. We were able to raise the money and offer bail on both of them on the outside. Before they can get her and take her to prison, we had the money for bail. We got her out, and when we got her out, it was late that night, and uh, we no, early that morning, and uh, they kept her down, you know, um, at the roundhouse. When we went and got her, we was taking her to get her food and take her home. She said, oh, no. She says, I'm walking back in here. She said, and I'm going to stand in the middle. of uh, When we walk down the aisle, she said, I'm going to stand in. I'm going to look at Sable to say, I'm still here. She said, I want to look him in his face. And she said, we'll deal with those charges later. And she did just that. Her mother, her children, they all came in support of her. And, uh, you know, the community was there in support of her. These people didn't stop there. And uh, um, there's a house, an empty house behind her. And her young daughters had a lot of friends come over. They was at a party in a, a back street behind, you know, in the street behind them, which the abandoned house that faces, you know, that's behind their house is empty. 
her daughters and them walking with these guys. One of the guys said, oh, shoot, I got to go to the bathroom. He, and so he goes to go into the vacant house in order to pee. When he went in there, they said they heard all these shots. He was shot, they said, by uh, drugs in the whole area, right? The cops said that they were in that house and all uh, because they were surveilling a drug area and all, uh, you know. And this house happened to be behind Veronica Jones' house. What was they doing with the uh, staking out a house behind and killing somebody? They killed that young boy. This freaked Veronica Jones out. There have been times when Veronica was walking down the street, she said, and the cop cars would, you know, be driving real slow beside her, be saying stuff. She said, she just keep on, you know, walking and walking. She said, then they got, she said, one time she took off and started running, and they drove up on the curb. She said, she had to run and jump up on the steps to get away from them. This is what they were doing, and I'm saying this is no secret here either because we were constantly putting it out. We took and hid her off in um, this, um, some people had offered her refuge was this organization, uh, religious organization called the Budahoss, and they lived up in, you know, um, the mountains uh, near Pittsburgh and things in upper state New York. We hid her off and all, you know, to try, you know, to help her to get her nerves and things together. This sister, Veronica Jones, people don't know her. This sister was a heroine. I mean, I hold her in the highest regards because she never backed down. And uh, when she left and went home that night, they got her and her um, guy that they was going. She was going to marry, and uh, you know he beat this girl unmercifully. We, we was told, and uh, um, but she didn't come to court the um, the day of uh, the following day, and we called to find out what you know whether she was okay, and she was saying she was all right. But for years she was a victim of. She was a, a woman that was a victim of um, uh, domestic um, violence. And uh, she winded up with cancer, but before she died, she wrote the book about her life and, you know, how she became a prostitute. She was raped by her mother's um, new husband, and she wandered out, out on the streets. And all uh, because she couldn't tell her mom, she didn't want to tell nobody what happened to her. And uh, it's the story of a million of us, you know, of women. And uh, she winded up on the streets. And uh, she was she was young. She was just 19 or something when she wound up on the street. And all uh, this officer Faulkner wanted her for his own pleasures. At first he started off when he saw her, he told her, he said, you know what, you don't have no business on the street. You can see that she was young and knew that she wasn't that kind of person. She says, and next thing you know, you know, um, you know, he would, he, he would shit, you know, send her away. But then she became his girlfriend. In actuality, uh, it's the Sally Hennon story. You know what I'm talking about? Mm-hmm. And uh, she was Jefferson's, you know, they tried to say that she, he was her lover. And uh, no, he was not her lover. And, uh, you know, he was um, her monster. But, you know, that's the story, you know, of Veronica. Uh, when she met Faulkner, Faulkner started protecting her. And uh, she wanted to board down there a lot, you know, dealing with him. He protected. She got beat up real bad by some cops and all. Uh,
who took her, you know, and raped her and sodomized her and stuff. And when Faulkner found out about it and all, he made her his. Nobody could mess with her and all. Um, So when they said Mumia shot Faulkner, she knew it wasn't true because she was on the scene that night. She was on the scene that night. She told what she saw. She told what she saw that night, and uh, and to show that she wouldn't, you know, you know Faulkner. It was a known thing that this was Faulkner's woman, okay, and uh, and in her book, and uh, because people were saying she's lying, she says I can tell you something that only me or his wife would know about a birthmark and where that birthmark is, and uh, she said Maureen, no, I'm not lying. And uh, you know about this affair, that whole thing about her and Faulkner just disappeared. Except, and she wants that story told. And uh, um, she hadn't finished her book, and uh, she sat with her sister, and um, she hadn't finished the book before she passed. But her sister had the um, the audio, the um, cassettes of her interviews and things with her, you know, about what had happened there and how, you know, she knew Cynthia White and knew that Cynthia White was lying and uh, um, because, you know, there was prostitutes together and they knew there was all a part. It was another prostitute involved in this, another one, sister, young sister by the name of Pamela Jenkins. Pamela Jenkins took the entire 39th district down here in Philadelphia, exposed it. This was a young sister that was... 14, uh, she was going to high school. She was in her early stages of high school. Had the same kind of situation, abuse in the family and uh, um, incest in the family. So this girl, you know, escapes and, you know, starts living on the street. She becomes the prostitute for a cop by the name of Ryan, who is also hooked up into the case of Momia's. And uh, they offered her the same deal. She refused in dealing with Momia. She refused to uh, deal with that. And uh, and the only reason why they didn't mess with her the way that they messed with Veronica is because she was Ryan's property, and Ryan was hooked up into this young uh, prostitute, you know, um, young black prostitute, you know, girls. And um, it was a whole lot of stuff that, you know, he was hooked up with. And when she took down the 39th district, she was held by the, because they must have wanted the 39th district to go down, because they took and put this sister on the front page of the papers, and they was talking about, you know, sympathetically her background and then how she was abused and all. I mean, she talked about the cases where prostitutes and all was told to lie on people on men and all to get them, you know, put in jail and all to say that they had drugs and they did drugs and stuff with them. She took this down and took got a lot of people out of jail. So when she would get arrested for her prostitution, because, you know, it was like a sickness to her. It wasn't that she needed, you know, you know, things, but this was a way of life for her, you know, at this particular point. And she did, still did, you know, um, drugs. And uh, when she would get locked up, and uh, they would let her go. This went on for years, and she told them that, you know, when, um, you know, when she came up for Mamiya, she stated that. 
no sooner she came up and we had the press conference with her about what was happening to her, she said she knew what was going to happen to her. They was going to come after her. And in the press conference, she told me, she said, you can check my record. And all she says, every time she came there, the record was um, she was released from prison. And uh, from from jail, she didn't even go all the way to jail. They would release her based on her taking that 39th district um, um, uh, police district down. Um, but when it came to Mumia, when she spoke for Mumia, the following day she was arrested, and we've been arrested ever since then. Every chance they get, and all uh, you know, she left um, the state of Pennsylvania. And all, uh, but this story is weaved with murders. And uh, because there is a man who confessed, wrote an affidavit, that he, not Mumia, killed Faulkner. And the reason why he was hired and uh, as a part of a scheme, he, he named the names of other police officers that had been murdered. He said that Faulkner, and uh, they found out, and the police found out, that he had been carrying a camera and that he... Was in, um, was investigating them. This is what this guy said. He was hired to take Faulkner out, right? And um, the DA never said that's false. It's not true. They said that man is, you know, he's in prison. He's dying. The man was not in prison. He wasn't dying. And all uh, you know, he's alive today. And uh, and kept stating that he killed Faulkner. Then you had people like. When they asked me about it, I don't know. I wasn't there. But my question is, is how come they didn't bring him in? You just got a man who signed the affidavit, and he can say things that only a person and the police knew what was going on. He said those things in the affidavit. But this brother here, they didn't bring him in. And uh, those affidavits, they didn't make it a part of law. They said because his story was unbelievable. And this guy talked, and he named cops by name. He named cops that had was killed, including Faulkner. You know, so this is what we're dealing with right here. This story is just one. Um, there's several uh, movies and documentaries and things that have been written on Momia. And, uh, but going down to the murders and things that have been committed, the late, great David P. Richardson, he was a state representative. And I got to get his statement so that you can, uh, we was at this rally, we called it, when they first signed the death warrant on Momia. And uh, we had this massive rally. And uh, I mean, they they said 10,000 people was there, right? And uh, I don't know, but I do know that if they say 10, it was probably 20, okay? It, I mean, the city was just full. David Richardson, state representative, I asked him to come to the stage and, you know, tell what it was that he knew. And uh, he said, I am a state representative. He said, I'm a black man, and I'm a state representative, and I don't confuse the two. I am a black man first and then a state representative. He says, we're not going to stand by and allow a chump like Governor Ridge to frame and kill Mumia. He said, 
I want to tell you about the petitions, y'all, the petitions that y'all write and sign that people think don't mean nothing. Let me tell you, they said they usually have boxes and all file boxes where they put the petitions in. They say, we have a closet from the floor to the ceiling, from one wall to the other wall, of petitions that's around the world. They had to change they had to change the uh, the numbers to the governor's office. They had to change the numbers to several different offices because, you know, we would shut them down. wasn't nothing moving. And uh, they had to keep changing numbers and emails and things and uh, to stop, you know, um, and then have secret backdrops and all, uh, you know, for people. And uh, he talked about how, you know, um, the death penalty was wrong. And, uh, you know, he talked about how there was not only, you know, state representatives and all. He said, but there are cops, organizations, black cops organizations, and all that's in support of Mumia. And all he says, and we're not going to stand by and allow you to kill Mumia. He said this on August the 12th, 1995, Mumia was to be executed and all on... Marcus Messiah Garvey's birthday, August the 17th. And, uh, you know, and instead of them, because, you know, that, that massive movement and the people rising up and doing what they were supposed to do. And uh, that night, David Richardson sitting in, he was, he was at a club, black club there that, you know, a lot of them frequent. And he left there. He was sick. He got sick. He went home. They had to rush him to the hospital. David Richardson died, you know, um, a little before 12 o'clock on August the 17th. That was when they were supposed to kill Momia. I'm saying people need to really look at this story, the murders that are coming from them, the crazy laws and things that they have done. They have beat people, they have maimed people, and uh, Daniel Faulkner's wife, she had lied on people. She said that when Mumi was sitting in the courtroom, she had this press thing afterwards, and she says, they brought my, my husband's bloody shirt into the courtroom. She says, he turned around and looked at me, and uh, she said, and he smiled and he smirked. Ain't nobody seen that but her. Because in that courtroom, it was jam-packed. It was media from around the world, across the country. And there was more cops than a little in there. You mean to tell me nobody saw that but her? And here's another thing she said. And here's the thing. The day that they brought Mumia Shirton to the courtroom, Mumia wasn't there. He was already thrown out because he acted so well. He represented himself so well. They put him out, banned him from the courtroom. But this woman lies and says that when they when they brought the shirt in and the blood was on it and she was so upset and she looks up and Mumia turns around and smiles and smirks at her. She also said that when she's on her way to court, this woman is surrounded by police. Blonde head brown eyes or blue, and are uh, surrounded by police when she come to court. And, uh, you know, um, and she's in the center of all of them. She, on another interview, said that mummiest people, she said, the torture that I go through, I have no support. 
He has, you know, all these celebrities and so forth and so on. I'm walking down the street, and one of the supporters spit, and he spit right in my face, and she starts to cry. I want to say to her, I got, y'all know the word, and all. Where's the bodies? Because if anybody, white or black, has spit in the face of that white woman, there had to be a body or somebody damn near dead. Nobody saw this either. But it's out there, and all for people, for white people, for people who want to, you know, or black, you know, because, you know, we, we, we have to battle everybody in this because this one said that what Maureen Falkins said, y'all need to watch up, you know, was telling us we need to hear how we do. We ain't helping Mamiya spitting in this broad's face. You know, people carry that stuff. And why would Mumia sit in the courtroom with all them people in there and turn around at her and smile and smirk? See, people be, believe the lie, some. But we had enough to stood by and heard and saw the truth. These things are in documentaries. They're in books. You have some of uh, um, the most prestigious lawyers and things who have come in there and have said about this case. And this is the case that is into its 37th, maybe 38th year right now. And uh, and the movement, and, uh, you know, when Mumia comes, well, they don't bring him, bring him to court. And uh, when it's a court case for Mumia, and uh, you would think he had got, you know, this shit happened, excuse me, this stuff happened yesterday. You know, by the amount of the crowds. And when they bring, when they have something dealing with Mumia in court, we're out there in full force, not only inside the uh, courtroom, on the outside of the courtroom, and on the outside of the streets, and bringing media in with us. Because when we get finished this, ain't nothing going to move in the city of Philadelphia, and because uh, yeah, they're going to have to know about Mumia. We take their largest streets and we block them up. We block up 95. We block up 76. And uh, ain't nothing moving till we get ready to move. And the thing is, people say, how can you do this? You know, merely behind the fact that the eyes of the world is watching this. So they don't bother us with these demonstrations. We have been out there in the rain, the sleet, the snow, the hail, and degrees of sun like it is today, protesting and, you know, pushing and pushing. So this silence thing that they're trying to do in the background, man, they took Malcolm like a thief in the night. Lumumba wasn't like a thief in the night, but... They tortured him. They held him. They tortured him and then took his body apart piece by piece. This is what they're doing to Mumia with this. And uh, with the hepatitis C, which he winded up with um, diabetes, and uh, right now, and uh, you know, they ain't got to start whacking on him. But in a minute, if they, if you allow him to stay in there, allow them to continue to give him the, I can't call it food, the um, that substance that they give him, 
and uh, um, this not food because nothing in there is real. The apples aren't real. The you know none of this stuff is real. And you know we on the outside we run the whole food hoping that we getting something real. And I'm going to tell y'all this too, it ain't real. And uh, the whole food food looks exactly if you go to your local supermarket where you know that people are avoiding because they you know they know that it's poison in there. Look at the apples, the oranges, the everything. It all looks alike. If anybody ever been around organic food, you know darn well it's not uniform like that stuff that they have there. They will sell you, and I ain't left Mumia, and uh, because this is part of why he's in there as well, was putting this information out too. And uh, you know, watermelon without seeds, how can it be organic? Well, organic meaning it isn't touched. Grapes without seeds, and uh, you know. Uh, cucumbers without seeds. If you don't have the seed of life, you got the you know the manufacturing of death. So this is all of us are sitting on you know death row. But back to Mumia. This is where we're at now, and I want to give y'all the address to Meckenberg. And I can't see. It. I don't have my glasses here. Um, wanted to give you the phone numbers to um, the DOC. I am so sorry. I cannot see these little this writing. But I'm gonna give. This is the address to the Pennsylvania DOC. If you cannot make it up there um, on Wednesday, we're having the press conference at the um, head of the Department of Correction for the State of Pennsylvania, um, and that address is 1920 Technology T E C H N O L O. Technology Drive in Mechanicsburg, M-E-C-H-A-N-I-C-B-U-R-G, Pennsylvania, and uh, ZIP 17050. And... Um, you know, because I don't have, I mean, I had the information before me. I, I don't have, I don't walked away from my glasses, and um, I can't see this, um, these numbers on here. But you can also call there, because this is the department, and all, uh, you know, and demand that Mumia get the medication, I mean, get the um, hospital attention that's needed in dealing with his eyes. Um, so, again, that address is... Um, Pennsylvania DOC, 1920 Technology Drive, Meckensburg, Pennsylvania, 17050. And if you, you know, please put it out to people that you know in Philadelphia, surrounding areas, and I'll tell them we really, really, you know, need help here. And our, um, this is not going to be the last action we're taking. You know, we get finished this particular one. We're having another meeting, and we're going to stop the DA wherever he be at and demand, you know, that they release Mumia based on judicial and prosecutorial misconduct. We want him released based on the fact proven fact that they are trying everything they can to kill Mumia. And uh, not us just saying it, but these judges are saying it. And, uh, and man, stop you, him. Do you, a, do you have a phone number? Uh, oh, my phone number? My phone number phone is 267. For people to call for more information? 
one station is called down um, State Department of Corrections. Oh, this is what I was saying. Um, I don't have the phone. I do have it here before me, and I let me see if I can squeeze these. And how can they get in touch with you for more information and stay in touch with you? Okay. In order to stay in touch with me, we have a website, too, and on it's called okay. Mobilization for Mumia. The number four, Mobilization, the number four, Mumia.com. My phone number is 267-760-760. 7344. Again, that number is 267-760-7344. And the mobilization number is 610-724-1618. Oh, and I do need to add this. Minister Louis Farrakhan has been very instrumental you know, keeping information in the paper and dealing with Mumia. In Philadelphia on the 31st of July, and uh, the Nation of Islam under Minister Rodney Muhammad and the prison ministry, Philadelphia Prison Ministry of Brother Gregory Muhammad is hosting a forum from 6 o'clock to um, 6 to 9 and uh, bringing people the information and uh, what we're doing, we're gathering people to rise up and do the work. And I must say that. And uh, and there also has been another uh, ministry, and uh, um, Sister Reverend Renee, and uh, Renee Wilson, and uh, um, who is the minister head of the Church of the Advocate. They have been very instrumental. But other than that, with people knowing, and I want to say this for sure, at one point, at one point, and all. Uh, all the ministers, I mean, we had all the black ministers helping. And um, once 911 happened, they were like ghosts. None of them. None of them. And when that faith based money came in, none of them. At what point, and uh, the black state representatives, the black um, um, congressional, con um, con congressional people, all took the stand. And uh, based on evidence, based on facts. But since 911 and this fool that you have in office now, and uh, the fear is unbelievable. Cynthia McKinney, mm, 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 mm. Congresswoman Cynthia McKinney, as a congresswoman, she was always on the front line putting out information about Momia's case, Jamil Alameen's case, Move case, and uh, name it, and uh, different political prisons. She was there and uh, putting out facts about them. That's why they had to get rid of Cynthia, and they all abandoned her as well. So what I'm saying, you know, if they got any bit of any kind of decency left in them, from what they knew and what they fought about before, that situation is still there. That brother is still hanging on. And behind the fact that they left, and uh, they can come back to a massive movement with more evidence than we had before, and uh, with help that we didn't have before, judges stating that what we're saying is right, and taking stands, and uh, on the call of law stands. Join them. You ain't got to join us. Fit in with, you know, come where you fit in at. 
you know, do what it is that you got to do. You know, go back into your history and find out what y'all were doing righteously. Again, my number is 267-760-7344. And um, thank you so much, brother. And I want to tell people, me and this brother go way, way back. And uh, are you still teaching at Richmond at that um, college that you brought us all to? Uh, no, he's from a Virginia Commonwealth. We work with yeah. the public school yeah. system. Yeah, we work hanging in yeah. there. Sister Pam, please leave me a couple of minutes. No problem. Let me do a couple minutes. Let me have my other panelists may want me at least make a comment to you on, on Mumia. We bring in Brother Anthony, and then we go to Brother Moses. Then we give you final closing thoughts. Brother Anthony, okay. question, comment, Yes, please. certainly. Yes, uh, uh, real briefly, uh, uh, great to hear from you again, sister. I saw you last night when you were in Newark. Uh, okay. Yeah, and also I want to wish uh, Mumia a speedy recovery and to commend him for in spite of the pain and suffering and, 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 uh, you know, and, and his efforts to file a lawsuit to get justice. He still finds time to persevere to write about our struggle in general. And I want to add that he's being persecuted partly because of his political beliefs. I sincerely believe that. And Mm -hmm. that, you know, that there are forces in Pennsylvania that don't like his politics, which he's been pushing since he was a a Black Panther when he was a teenager uh, uh, growing up in Philadelphia. And I was hoping you'd be able to talk briefly about his latest book, which is part two of Murder Incorporated, about the, you know, uh, capitalist system inside the U.S. Can you do that part? Talk about that. Sure. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Well, anyway, he goes uh, in that part. uh, I haven't gotten the book yet, so I'm just uh, summarizing he analyzes the history of the CIA, the intervention of uh, U.S. in various parts of the world in order to maintain its hegemony over uh, over Africa, uh, North, uh, Central, and South America, and the Caribbean, uh, primarily. And uh, and uh, you know, I I look forward to getting a, a copy of the book. But, uh, you know, but I think this brother deserves our support because he has persevered even after he left the Black Panther Party and in his journalist uh, uh, efforts to speak truth to power and to and to fight against uh, capitalism, uh, you know, in all of his manifestations. Right. And he said he learned his revolutionary writings and uh, um in the Panther organization. And uh, that's where he learned to write the way he did. And uh, the women and uh, and the brothers and uh, who mentored young brothers coming in, he was one of them. And uh, um, he was good in school at writing, and uh, but they gave him a different way of seeing things and projecting it and putting it out. And he enhanced that through the years. And uh, and he always 
although he left the Panthers, he did two years with the Panthers, and uh, and he got a lot of good out of it. He continued to be involved in, but he moved on, and uh, he went to, um, after he left the Panthers, he came up here, he was writing for different radio shows, um, doing the news for different radio shows, and he went to Goddard College, and, you know, just further, this brother was always, you know, furthering himself. A lot of people don't know that Mumia as a child and uh, uh, where he lived at and uh, in the projects and, uh, you know, um, his mother and she had several children, I think five and all uh, four boys and a girl. And uh, he used to get up in the, in the mornings and on Sundays and go around to the different churches because he wanted to understand as a child and uh, what these churches, you know, meant. And all uh, you know, um, and he did a book called Faith of Our Fathers too, and uh, that deals with um, the different religions and uh, and what he um, discovered about them. But these three books, and well, it's two. It's a three book series, and they're three hundred pages. Let me tell you how people are, and uh, because Mumia, when he wrote him and Steve Victoria wrote this book, they went some of these books. Well, it was a book then. They um. Nobody would take on taking this book on. And um, they said, it's, you know, it's too many, you know, things. So they said, well, if we break it down into three sections, they said, no, it's too thick, and our people's not going to read it, you know, blah, blah, blah. So Noel Hanrahan, who came on the scene and started doing the commentaries for Mumia, and our first day was on on cassettes that people would hear for all these years and stuff, and uh, she decided to become an editor. And uh, she was the one who took on and, you know, um, did the book and had never done this before. So you have to get people to help you. you got to learn, you know, all these things. Those three books, um, so she she talked with them and they divided them up into three books. And uh, the first two is out and they're bestsellers as well, too. The third one is either going to come out around December the 9th, it's around the anniversary of when they tried to kill Mumia and failed all these years, or it might come out around his birthday, April the 24th. I'm not sure of which one. But if you go to prison radio dot com or dot org, I'm not sure of the which one, or Google Prison Radio, you'll find those books and, you know, how you can actually purchase the books. We saw all the ones we had last night. And, uh, um, um, you know, how you can purchase. Again, that's prisonradio.com or prisonradio.org, you know, one or the other. Or you can just, you know, go to YouTube and, you know, uh, you know put it in, um, and you'll come up with... This one also has all the commentaries Mumi has done, and all uh, since 1980-something. And, uh, you know, and you can go and find any subject you got. Oh, God. And uh, I just advise people to go and see this. This is just so awesome. You would not believe, you know, the archives there. And, you know, the different movies and things, Case for Reasonable about Death, uh, Death Row Notebook, and all that was done by activists, that particular one. Um, Long Distance Revolutionary, and, uh, um, you know, in prison all my life. This is about a young brother and uh, um, who was born on the same day that Mumia was born, um, but it was, you know, I think he, when Mumia went to jail December the 9th, 
that was the year that that brother was born because he was born on December the 9th. So it was called In Prison All My Life. And um, it's a documentary that was bestsellers, you know, people um, uh, in the movies. And, uh, you know, when theaters said that, you know, well, we'll try it out, they wound up holding it over for a month. I know when it first went to New York and Long Distance Revolutionary, they was trying to see how it would make out for a week and wound up staying in both of them over a month. And that's the way I was shocked in Philadelphia. I said, oh, this film ain't going to never show here. But lo and behold, and I figured, I said, oh, the FOP, they're going to be demonstrating against it. It played, they, they took it here, um, you know, at the um, the Ritz and our theater. And uh, they said they were going to try it out for a week and wind up staying a month here in Philadelphia. And, uh, you know, people just kept seeing it, and they added on, and they added other theaters, you know, opened other theaters because the demand was so high that people wanted to see these films. But now you can see them on YouTube, you know, just, you know, Google them. And if you don't know um, all the names of the different films, just, you know, Google um, documentaries on Mumia. Oh, no, hey, I'm going to make One more brother real quickly. Brother Moses, your question, comment, please. Right, right. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Thank you for being on the show. Uh, this has been you. a pleasure listening to you explain the situation with Romia. Um Certainly, we, we, our best wishes go out to him. Uh, uh, he's been in the struggle so long, and uh, it's been so effective in communicating the situation where, that we as people face. And uh, I, I, I commend you, Pan Africa, for, for hanging in there and, and continuing this struggle. And uh, in the interest of time, I'll, I'll just leave it right there. Thank you. Thank you. And, I, you know, I'm a disciple of John Africa, and it's the family Africa. And, uh, you know, and Brother Lee is going to have um, some of my family on there later on, um, I think towards the beginning of the month. I'm not sure of the date. And, uh, but you're talking about stories and, uh, you know, commitment and all uh, to life. And uh, that's us. This activity that I do on Mumia, John Africa, the night that they – shot, ran Mumia's head into a pole, tried to kill him that night and kidnapped him, you know, off the streets at gunpoint and uh, and put him in this hell for all these years. John Africa gave me this activity. And uh, he said I was to raise the necessary funds and the information to to bring Mumia home. All other members, that was their activity too, but it was my main activity to stay with this. And, you know, um, I've gotten the energy, the strength, and all, you know, to continue to do this, and all, through the teachings of John Africa, through the work of my family, and through doing this, I've got one of the most magnificent worldwide families, y'all, who sit in the studio, Brother Lee, and I'm talking, this ain't no part-time family we got here. And all, we can, you know, I know, I know that we can depend on the people, you know, and that was something that I was so thankful in doing the work of John Africa, being one of the members of the family, and uh, being here, who's opened my eyes to so much, so much, and all uh, you know, and it's really a blessing to be here because the love, the respect, 
and all that is given for the work that we do and all, you know, can't nobody pay money for the feelings that we get and all from doing the right thing and from, you know, being a part of your families and all, our families and all, who is, you know, determined and all to take and put the injustices of people of life in a toxic soil and bury it forever. That's what we want to do. Well, Sister Pam, we have to thank you for coming on the program today and speaking truth to power and continue to be the example that our people need to see, a true revolutionary fighting for freedom, justice, equality for all of humanity. Give our love to Brother Himumia, and we'll be doing that special program on the 4th of August. So to our listening audience, please make sure you check us out on the 4th of August from 7 to 9 p.m. Sister Pam, you got two quick minutes. You'll find the thoughts. And uh, my final thoughts is I want my phone to light up, 267-760-7344. And, you know, I'm dealing right now with um, the situation for Wednesday. Um, you know, so if you can help me somewhere. I mean, this number is for, you know, at any time that you want to call. And uh, if I can't get right back to you, I do get back. And uh, I'm not good at Gmail. I, I just had my granddaughter erase. 66,000 emails, and uh, because, I mean, I'm overwhelmed. I'm, I'm truly, truly overwhelmed. The help that I had before is not there, and then I get help, and, you know, I get information, and, you know, I find it in boxes, desks, or something, so it's really best to give me a call and, uh, you know, or to text me. I do get back, you know, um, you know with those. And uh, But if you want to email me, Call me and let me know, and all, uh, because other than that, I get to that when I can. At all, uh, you know, you have no idea of the weight of the what is it? The, you know, I can deal with the Texas, and all uh, they got uh, this messenger and this, um, you know, every time I turn, it's new stuff that they add on there to it, and you know, the technology is good, but it can kill you too, and all uh, if you try to just do it all. So I'm telling people how it's best, you know, for me. And uh, that you call me, text me, and I do get back with my, um, you know, texts and calls because I find it less complicated. And Sister Alvin, thank you for your contribution to today's program. And you have to say something to our sisters back south in Cuba, Sister Asylum. Oh, happy birthday. Uh, you know what, the picture of me and her together, um, um, and because uh, I was brought to Cuba, and uh, you know, for a while to spend time with her and our brother Fidel Castro, um, and a uh, happy birthday aside, that's one of them Stevie Wonder happy birthday songs, you know, <laughs> oh man. Yes, you know, and the program that we was at last night was for Asada. Thank you, brother, for bringing that to the forefront. Yes, happy birthday, Asada, when you see her, hug her for me. All right, so thank you for your contribution. And to my panelists, follow Brother Moses, your final thoughts for tonight. Once we do our final thoughts and announcement panelists, we can go back to lessons from the 62 90s from Brother Kwame Ture. It fits timely mm. into the subject tonight. So that's how we're going to end up. So first we're going to our closing thoughts, then we're going to end up with Brother Kwame Ture talking about precisely what is happening now. We must learn from our history and learn from our freedom fighters. So right now, Brother Moses, you'll find the thoughts for the night. Well, first of all, happy birthday, Sister Asada, and, and, and keep up the good work, uh, Brother Mamiya. 
I hope you a speedy and healthy return to the struggle, to the full struggle uh, in a healthy way. And um, I just thank you for allowing me to be on the show. Have a good night. Thank you, Brother Moses. Brother Haki, your final thoughts for tonight and announcements. Yes, a couple of things. A couple of things. African Awareness will be taking a trip to Cuba in solidarity with the people tour. Uh, this trip takes place October 31st to November 6th. We encourage you to give us a call at 804-549-7492 or area code 202-714-9435 or email us at African Awareness Association, all one word, number two, at gmail.com. And in closing, I should just simply like to say, um, Sister Pam Africa, uh, you know, her presentation pretty much is, uh, epitomizes the underbelly of law enforcement. And so when we talk about corruption and we talk about crime, we talk about manipulation, law enforcement is often guilty of these kind of atrocities. And uh, so when you ask African people why they don't trust law enforcement, Sister Pam Africa laid out why there's no trust in terms of law enforcement. But having said that, I always encourage people to unravel the matrix, and uh, we'll see you next week. Thank you, Brother Haki, for your contribution to today's program. Now we go to Brother Anthony. Your final thoughts, Brother Anthony, for tonight. Uh, certainly. I want to thank uh, Sister Pam Africa for taking the time out uh, to share with us the information about uh, Mumia and uh, the work uh, that her organization is doing and uh, giving us another lesson on the importance of organization. Because uh, without the organization and the hard work of the masses of the African people, uh, Mumia would not uh, would not have gotten to this point. And I wish him a speedy uh, a speedy recovery, and that he'll uh, uh, you, you know uh, be released from prison soon. And also, uh, let's see, on uh, July twentieth uh, to 29th, uh, this Saturday coming up, there will be a program commemorating the 66th anniversary of the attack on the Moncada barracks in Cuba, which started mm. uh, the spark the Cuban Revolution, uh, uh, which uh, com- uh, which commenced in 1959 and continues thanks to the perseverance of the people to this day. And Brother Anthony, just briefly talk a little bit about your organization, the APIPGC, and how they can find out more information. Because there are people out there disorganized. It must be organized. And we know the organization is a weapon for the press. And your organization is one that the people need to know about. Talk briefly a little bit about that organization for our listening audience. Certainly. Uh, certainly. The All-African People's Revolutionary Party, GC, is a mass independent pan-Africanist political party. Our objective is pan-Africanism the total liberation and unification of Africa under scientific socialism, and our ideology is in Kumism to To learn more about our organization, please visit our website at www.a-aprp-gc.org, or you can call us at 202-239-2376. Thank you, Brother Anthony, for your contribution. And to our people, remember, the only 
objectives that is capable and will solve the problems, the daily problems of our people throughout the world is Pan-Africanism, which is properly defined as the total liberation and unification of Africa under scientific socialism. Learn more about Pan-Africanism. That is the key that will set and make all African free. And on that note, what we're going to do is we're going to play a little bit of music liberation named Buffalo Soldier. And after that, you will hear lessons from the 60s through the 90s by Brother Kwame Toure. We thank you for listening to Africa on the Move. Spread the word. We'll see you next week. Let's continue to move going forward and backwards now. Thank you for your welcome. We have been allotted uh, half an hour, and uh, within this half an hour, we are to explain some of the lessons of the movement of the 60s and uh, its relationships of the 80s and relevance to the 21st century. I have picked about uh, five areas that I, I have picked about five areas which I would like to uh, discuss. The first lesson that we can come to look from the 60 and gain is the understanding that the statement made by Abraham Lincoln is a true statement. You can fool some of the people some of the time, but you cannot fool all of the people all of the time. This statement can be understood within the context of United States imperialism and its role in the late 50s. In the late 50s, based on the resolutions passed at the 5th Pan-African Congress in 1945, a decision was made that Africans the world over must create mass organizations and mass movements to confront colonialism in Africa and the Caribbean in the final round and also to confront racism and economic exploitation in the United States. From 1945 to 1960, 
Within 15 short years of this conference, over 230 million Africans were to gain independence. Swiftly following in that wake, the Caribbean was to light a fire with independence movement, and of course, the United States of America itself, beginning its mass movement since the mid-50s mid with Martin Luther King and the Montgomery boycott came to show mass movements everywhere. The American capitalist system, in the wake of the independence struggle in Africa, was trying everywhere to demonstrate to countries just struggling against colonial powers in Europe that it was not like the European powers, that it was not racist, it was democratic, it never had colonies, etc., etc. The African masses in America came to put that lie to arrest quickly. Mass struggle inside the country came to demonstrate before the entire world that America was far from being a democratic country. It came to demonstrate, in fact, that countries in Africa were much further advanced in democracy than America ever was. Here, at least, Africans can vote. In America, they could not. One of the lessons, then, that we must draw squarely from the 60s is an understanding that real struggle must be left and must be understood only by the masses of the people. It is the masses of the people who could not believe the lies of America and came to struggle instinctively against these lies. This instinctive struggle must be properly understood. History, of course, is made both consciously and unconsciously. Last month in Miami, Africans came to unconsciously make history by revolting against brutal conditions and pushing humanity forward. But this was instinctive, unconscious, unplanned. Indeed, this is the same aspect of the struggle that we saw in the 60s, instinctive struggle. That's if we are to draw a conclusion just from this aspect of struggle, that is to say the people struggling unconsciously, unplanned, spontaneously and instinctively, that since people have an instinctive love of freedom, everywhere they will struggle for freedom. The history of Africans in America proved this clearly. Nowhere have they consciously organized to make advance. All the advances they have made have been unconscious, instinctive, and spontaneous. Certainly you can understand what will happen when these people become thoroughly organized. The lessons then must be clear. Human beings, like animals of the lower form, have instincts. Human beings, unlike animals of the lower form, have the ability to think and reason. The lesson then must be clear. All of our instincts at all times, under all conditions, must be governed by reason. The instinctive struggle of the 60s, the spontaneous struggle of the 60s, the unconscious struggle of the 60s, if they are, served to, if they are to serve to us as lessons, must come to be qualified in conscious movements, or rational movements, and planned movements. This then seems to me to be the first lesson that we would have to acquire from the 60s. <clears throat> of course, the capitalist system lies all the time. Some people think it lies some of the time, but it lies all of the time. And in lying, it has an attempt to make us think that in the 60s we were an organized people and everything was all right. We were not organized. We were a mobilized people. Thus are we to get a heavy lesson from the 60s. The lessons must be clear. A mobilized people, really, an instinctive people, a spontaneous people who struggle, struggle like animals. Even if we take the example of Miami, we can see it clearly here. 
In Miami, we're oppressed, just like we are everywhere else. But we wait until an outside force provokes us into action. Everywhere you will see us, it is always an outside force that provokes the African masses into action, even on the campus here. I told some brothers the other day, you want to organize all the African students on the campus? I can do it overnight. All I got to do is write a filthy sign, derogatory against them, put them on the campus. Next day, they all come to the meeting. <laughs> and one of the errors that must be corrected, a people struggling for their freedom cannot depend upon an external force to push them into motion. They must have an internal dynamism of their own. Consequently, the African masses, in drawing lessons from the 60s, must come clearly to understand that they must have a dynamism in their hands to tell them when to attack the enemy, how to attack the enemy, and where to carry their struggle. Thus, the 60s must come to be qualified from a mobilized struggle to an organized struggle. We say they fight like animals. You back an animal up against the wall, and the animal, even a rabbit, will come out striking at you until you back up. Those Africans, once provoked, come out striking wildly, as they do in Miami. The police retreat, give them some concessions, they sit down, and then the police comes back with more repression. None of the gains made by a, by a mobilized people can be maintained. It is only an organized people who can make gains and use those gains to further their struggle. Indeed, the gains made by the 60s, since they were made by an unorganized people in a state of mobilization, have not been used by the people, but in fact used by the enemy against the people. It is clear for the history of Africans in America that unlike others in this country, the history is not the same, entirely different from everybody else. All those who came here came here expecting a better life. An African put on a slave ship from Africa knew he was coming to hell. It's a fact. Consequently, the relationship between the country cannot be same unless this African has lost consciousness of his history and think that he came on the Mayflower. <laughs> this aspect of organization from mobilization must be properly understood. No individual African in this country makes any advancement based on his individual talents or worth. All individual advancements are based on mass struggle. This must be properly understood and can be properly underlined for you once you know the history of Africans is not the same as the history of others. We make no progress in this country without shedding our blood. No one sitting in this audience can give me one example where Africans in this country have made any progress without shedding their blood. In order for them to get into a filthy five and ten cent store, they must shed their blood. In order to sit on a bus where they pay the same amount as everybody else do, they must shed their blood. In order to get their children into state schools where they pay taxes more than anybody else, they must shed their blood. In order to get the vote which every immigrant gets the minute he comes here, they must shed their blood. Consequently, any advances made by any individual African is made as a result of mass struggle. Thus, that position does not belong to the individual African, it belongs to the people. Failure to use this position for the benefit of the people is a betrayal of the blood of the people. Consequently, when we come to correct the 60s and look properly at the lessons, we must become an organized people who, once having made gains, are capable of choosing for ourselves who will occupy those gains. They come to talk about some man named Brown who's going to be head of the Democratic Party. Who picked him? Who picked him? Did the African masses in the Democratic Party pick him? Not at all. As a matter of fact, the Democratic Party holds the Africans in great contempt. They have more elected positions than any other ethnic group in the Democratic Party and has no power in the party at all. 
They have 302 mayors, 20 congresspeople, 5,000 state, county, local, but no other ethnic group in this country has those many elected officials, and still they have no power in the Democratic Party. Why? Because we are not organized. Consequently, to transform our movement, to push it to higher levels, which it must go, because we will arrive at our freedom, if even instinctively, we must come here to put ration and clear reasoning to our struggle and organize the masses of our people. The second lesson we wish to speak of is the role of students. Students, of course, have a role in any society, capitalist society, social society, and their role is to institutionalize the values of the given society. Conscious, of course, in a capitalist system, this should be done unconsciously. But students are the spark of revolution. Of course, we make a difference here between revolution and reform. Those who want reform seek to work, I guess, from the top down. Those of us who understand fundamental changes know it must come from the bottom up. The students, of course, always work at the point of ideas in a society. Their job is to acquire knowledge, and of course, this knowledge which they acquired is geared by an ideology which tells them what to do with it. So if you're a doctor, instead of curing cancer, you should turn a man to a woman to get money even though she can't make babies. <laughs> that was life. Students, we say, at the point of ideas and the point of values. When one speaks of revolution, one speaks of overturning the values of a given society. If one is not speaking of overturning the values, then one speaks of reform. Thus, one can join the Democratic Party. We're not here to overturn its value. But certainly if one is here for revolution and one is here for people's liberation, one would know that a corrupt instrument can never lead a people to liberation at all. Students then, we say, come to question the values of a society. Of course, in relationship to the values, students, just like anyone in any society, have but two alternatives. Either they accept the values or they reject the values. It's as simple as that. Of course, if they reject the values, they have a responsibility to find alternative values. But either you accept cheating as a student or you reject it. It's as simple as that. Either you accept any value in a society or you reject it. Students, once having rejected a society, bringing together their ideas and their energies and strength to work against these values connected with the masses always give us revolution. Thus, from the 60s, while a reform movement, we were able to see that students, joined with the masses of the people, came to bring a lot of changes to the country. Thus, we must not confuse ourselves. The job of students is clear here. Their job is to spark revolution. Students cannot carry revolution through to the end. The final triumph of revolution must be carried through to the end by the masses, the workers and the peasants. But students play a crucial role. We say they spark revolution. Certainly, if we did not recognize this, the enemy did. The FBI, before the 60s, did not have informers on college campus. After the 60s, they put an informer on every college campus in the country. Their job was simple, stop any activity at all that runs against the status quo. We say it's a mobilized people who can allow this, because when you're mobilized and fight like an animal, after you get tired and you wind down, then the enemy comes back stronger than he did before. Students spark revolution, and we must work everywhere to have students live up to their responsibility of sparking revolution. Here, of course, it calls for the students properly understanding the role of knowledge. Knowledge has but one purpose. Its purpose is to alleviate the sufferings of humanity. Knowledge has but one purpose. Its purpose is to alleviate the sufferings of humanity. Capitalism is a backward and stupid system. Capitalism is a contemptuous system. 
capitalism is a system made on profit. It will make a commodity out of everything. It will take my mother and sell her on a slave block. It will make students acquire knowledge and make them sell their knowledge on the slave block to advance themselves rather than serving humanity. The struggle becomes especially crucial for African students. We say no individual African in this country makes any advance unless it is a result as mass struggle. Any student sitting in any seat in any college in America know that they didn't gain that seat through their own individual talents, but only through the struggles of the masters of their people. Thus, that seat belongs to the people. The knowledge they acquire there must be used for the people, otherwise they have already betrayed the people and have repeated errors. Thus, thus students of the 80s going into the 90s have a responsibility to use their knowledge to help advance the struggles of humanity. We say the lessons here must be properly understood and the students going to spark these movements must go properly organized in order to bring organizational skills to the masses of the people. The third area. The 1960s, of course, was a mobilized area and as a mobilized area there would be a lot of confusion. One of the biggest areas of confusion was the basis of the struggle. Some felt that the base of the struggle must be made by appeals to morality. Of course, anyone knowing anything about struggle knows that this cannot be. Even Frederick Douglass so long ago told us that uh, power concedes nothing without demands. It never did and it certainly never will. Consequently, what was learned from the struggles of the 60s is that when one comes to struggle, one must struggle for power, not for morality. Certainly, one cannot speak of morality when one is speaking to capitalism. It is an immoral system. It has no conscience. It knows only its own interest. It will commit genocide to take land from the red man. It will commit slavery to enrich itself. It will drop napalm bombs on babies in Vietnam. Consequently, when we come to talk of advancing ourselves through power, we must come to speak of just that, power. And we must understand that the only place we find power is through the organized masses. Simply put, until the masses of our people are organized, we will remain powerless and thus the victims of all vicious powers that seek to exploit us. The question of morality, of course, must not be put aside, no. But it is clear that any struggling people struggling for justice are already struggling uh, for a moral struggle. Consequently here, the question of morality doesn't lay with them, but with the enemy who seeks to keep them oppressed. We must then understand clearly that when we look for power in the 90s, we must look, when we, look for, when we struggle in the 90s to advance ourselves, we must struggle only based on our own power, the, power of the, the ability to organize our people. Of course, we said that we advance only through mass struggle, and that is clear. Consequently, we must come to understand that it is only through mass organization and conscious mass struggle that we will properly arrive at our liberation in a planned manner. This leads to another point which must be clear, the questions of coalitions. The 1960s, of course, made many errors with coalitions. Here, we believe that political coalitions could be made based on sentiment. Somebody said they feel the way we do, and consequently we come to organize them. The history, of course, of our people shows that this cannot be the case. If one would go back to the history of the South in this country, immediately after the Civil War, there arose at that time a party known as the Populist Party. One of the leaders of the Populist Party was a man by the name of Tom Watson, a white man from Georgia. 
Watson came after the Civil War to tell the Africans that the rich white man, he exploits the poor white man and the poor African. And consequently, what we need to do is to join an alliance against the rich white man. Well, you know, as Africans, we just love anything anybody. We just ran into the party. <laughs> We filled the party of the populist. We did work for the populist. We were everywhere in the populist party. After the Hayes-Tilden Compromise, when the government decided to give the South back to the slave masters, Tom Watson became a member of the Ku Klux Klan and drove us out of the populist party. What was the error? The error was that as a force we were not independently organized, thus not even knowing our own power. We went in as individuals into the party, thus they could chase us out. Examples that will be found everywhere. The struggle of the labor movements in this country is certainly instructive. If one would look at the struggle for labor unions in this country, one would find that Africans have everywhere played a role out of proportion to their numbers. If you look at labor unions today, they are racist from top to bottom. What was the error? Africans came to enter the unions without being first an organized force. The 60s then come here. We were told that we had coalitions with groups I've never heard of, the labor union. We had interests with the church groups, all of them. They were all, all for our interests. <laughs> of course, the error was that some Africans thought that the interest of America was the same as the interest of us. Of course, the job of the system, the job of the enemy is to confuse you and to let you think that your interest and your history is the same as that of your oppressor. As a matter of fact, the job of the master is to convince the slave that the master is really concerned about the interest of the slave. And if the master doesn't do well, the slave will be in trouble. Any slave who believes that he has the same interests as the master will pick cotton at night. All slaves must understand that their interests are diametrically opposed to the interests of the master. Not only are they diametrically opposed, they are antagonisms to each other. What is good for the master is bad for the slave. What's bad for the master is good for the slave. Of course, we said that even the people instinctively understand this, and the 60s come to clarify the point clearly. Of course, if you would look at the 60s, you would see at the height of the struggle, the struggle for human rights, came to be, uh, there came to be some confusion here with the war in Vietnam. The people always see clearly. Instinctively, the people understood, the African masses, that they had to be against the war in Vietnam. There was no question here. But it was in just expression of this position against the war in Vietnam that one came to see that in order to have coalitions, one must really have coalitions based on interest. I am not even talking here of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, which was really the radical cutting wing of the movement of the 60s, and which was the first one to take a position against the war in Vietnam. Indeed, it did not take a position for peace. It took an anti-imperialist position. It said clearly it wanted the Vietnamese to win, and the way it was going to do that was to demobilize the Americans by not having an army. Thus, the slogan which Snick gave to them was a simple one. Hell no, we won't go. Simple as that. And that simple slogan, of course, came to cause splits within these coalition forces. The labor unions who walked hands in hands with us for, for struggles all of a sudden were for the Vietnam War against us. The church itself had to step back. Obviously here, we didn't understand what we were fighting for. We thought we were fighting for freedom. And Dr. Martin Luther King said it all the time, freedom is indivisible. As a matter of fact, he used to say all the time, injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. Consequently, if there's injustice in Vietnam, I'm stupid thinking I'm sitting in America not to think that it affects me. If there's injustice in Vietnam, I better go cut it down before it comes to find me. Consequently, since Africans assuming that justice was indivisible and began to move and to move everywhere against injustice, they came up against contradictions with those whom they made coalitions around the question of the war in Vietnam. We only use it here as a clear example. 
Africans cannot form coalitions until they themselves are organized and know exactly what their interests are. Thus, there's no need for us to talk now about coalition with anybody because we are a disorganized people. First, we must become organized. It is for this reason that we're held in such contempt by the Democratic Party, because inside the Democratic Party, we are a disorganized people, even inside the there, with one fighting against the other, simply because we have not organized ourselves properly. It is for this reason that they will give us somebody and make us think that we pick them just because he looks like us. <coughs> Coalitions then can only be formed once we are organized and know precisely what our interests are. What then are the relevancy for the 90s? Revolution is inevitable everywhere in the world, this is clear. And anyone taking just a cursory glance at the United States of America must know that America is more ripe for revolution today than it was in the 60s. What are the conditions that lead us to this conclusion? Number one, the conditions are worse today than they were in the 60s. In the 60s, we didn't have to deal with three million homeless. And not only that, the very objective conditions put the people into contradictions with their own instinctive knowledge. Every man and woman in America, even the most unconscious man or woman in America, knows that America has enough wealth to feed and clothe three million homeless. It's a question of the will of the people. Consequently, the objective conditions we say are higher, but these objective conditions are higher with also another rising factor, the rising consciousness of the people. The enemy tries everywhere through their mouthpiece, the mass media, to make it appear as if the people's consciousness is not growing, as if it stopped. This is stupidity. The consciousness of the people must forever grow. And some of us become confused, not even understanding how it manifests itself. The other day, having a discussion with an elderly man, he came to say to me, Kwame Ture, you're always up on the college campus with our students. I said, oh yes, I work with them all the time. He said, uh, they are more unconscious. They're so unconscious, they're more unconscious than you were when you were a student. I said, never. He said, yes. I said, no, if they're more unconscious than we were, our work was in vain in the 60s. He said, no, I'm telling you, they're more unconscious than you are. I said, no, they cannot be. He said, if you go up on the college campus and talk to them, they know nothing about Martin Luther King, they know nothing about Malcolm X. I said, that's correct. We don't teach them. But one thing is certain, you cannot put them on the back of a bus. Yes, of course. <laughs> of course. Of course. Of course. <laughs> Conscious he was, he went on the back of the door. <laughs> Once history is made, it cannot be unmade. The job of the enemy is to push the people back. Once we broke out of slavery, they did everything possible to push us back into slavery. No, sharecropping, yes, but not slavery. Since the 60s, they've been doing everything else to push us back. But once a man or a woman has learned something, as Sigmund Freud has scientifically demonstrated, it never leaves the mind even if he thinks he's forgotten it. And once the people have learned something through struggle, never can they forget it. Consequently, the struggles of the 60s must be, un must, you must understood, are already ingrained in the culture of the people, making them more determined to fight, not less. If you come to look properly at America, we say it is more ripe for revolution today than ever before. In the 1960s, and we must show here the rising level of political consciousness, if you want to see the rising level of political consciousness in this country, don't look to the left, look to the right. The right in America today are involved in activities which in the 1960s they considered to be communist. If you would look properly at America today, you will see the conditions are more ripe. 
In the 60s, the progressive forces were facing the government and the right wing, which were fighting for status quo. Today, the right wing is not with the government. It's against the government. It's fighting the government. You have the right fighting the government and the left fighting the government. The possibility of change becomes easier, even though the right is not fighting for the same change the left is fighting for. That's understood. But the fact that both of them are fighting against the government makes the possibility of change much easier. And we say, if you want to see the rising level of consciousness, look to the white right in this country. Where they disagree with busing, they burn buses. Where they disagree with abortion, they bomb clinics. Thus they themselves have come to demonstrate the use of violence as a potent force in arriving at a political objective. Everywhere the conditions for revolution are more ripe today than ever before. And in all of this is of course the rising consciousness of the people. The younger generation of Africans in this country, the youth, really believe that everything in America they have a right to. They believe it as a result of the struggles of the 60s. When they come up against a wall, there's going to be a serious explosion in this country. That explosion cannot be a repetition of the 60s. Indeed, history never repeats itself, even though bourgeois scholars never stop harping this song. <laughs> Nothing repeats itself, but people, however, can repeat their mistakes. Yes. And of course, once you repeat a mistake, it is more grave than the first time around. The lessons then must be clear. There is no question and you must in no way lose faith in the masses of the people. It is they and they alone who make revolution, not their petty bourgeois spokesmen who betray them everywhere. And the conditions of the masses are worse today than they were in the 60s. These masses must have change and will have change by any means necessary. The final point then. The final point then. You must not become confused by the American capitalist system, which holds up betrayers of the people's struggle as representatives of the people. In any army in the world, if you desert, you should get shot. It's a law. Certainly you must be shot. And if you volunteer for an army, you should be shot twice. <laughs> of course. Of course. You volunteer for the people's army. The people go to fight. They're ready to fight. You say, I'm leaving. What do you mean you're leaving? But if you will look at our struggle since the 60s, you will see nothing but betrayals by the petty bourgeois elements in our society. The African bourgeoisie is the most corrupt bourgeoisie in the world. In Africa, they seek luxury in the midst of mass suffering. There are more Mercedes in Africa than in any other continent in the world. In America, as soon as they arrive at a position based on the blood of the people, they snatch that position and run away from the people. But you must not think that they represent the people. They only represent their opportunistic self using the people every step of the way. So you must not be confused. It must be clear then for the 60s, the class struggle in the African Revolution must be more ruthless and uncompromising than in any other revolution. Here then the masses must come without pity and without mercy to trample upon these reactionary pigs who after the people have gained struggle through their blood come to hand back the gains on a silver platter to the very enemy the people fought. This will come as a natural consequence. The people themselves are everywhere screaming that it's time for them to deal with these reactionary pigs. Even in America, they say, our leaders must be held accountable. They're only saying here that these people must be accountable to those who made it possible for them to get there. Thus, 
Not only is the revolution inevitable, but it is clarifying itself and it is qualifying itself. For the African masses everywhere, the clear poise position now for class struggle has become inevitable and irreversible. The petty bourgeoisie everywhere will be running for cover, but the masses will spare them not. Consequently, we who have dedicated our lives to the people's struggle, we who knowing that the people will always be free, we understanding that we must make a contribution to qualify our struggle since the 60s, have been, have been dedicating all our energies to only one task, the organization of the masses of our people. The organization of the masses of our people. We are not running for mayor. We're not running for president. No changes can come from the top down. We're not stupid. Changes can only come from the bottom up. The masses and the masses alone can make them. If you want to learn something from the 60s, the lesson is simple. Organize the masses of the people. Thank you. Thank you.